You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. Very good uh, morning to you this Monday morning, uh, however you're getting on in the world. I hope you had a good weekend, a uh, better weekend than Wayne Rooney's on the front of the uh, newspapers after his arrest in Dulles Airport for uh, being boozed up and uh, swearing and intoxication was the um, charge. So he obviously uh, told somebody where to go. On his way back from Saudi Arabia, apparently he'd taken mixed drinks and sleeping tablets. I don't really know what a mixed drink is. A drink with a mixer? Is that is that like... You know, it's just he wasn't just drinking lager and wine, or did he did he mix lager and wine? Is that, that that's how I picked it up? He mixed lager and wine, which is always a, a bad combination, particularly presumably if, if you've been in Saudi Arabia and you've been uh, on the dry for a couple of days. Yeah, you see, you don't need to be on the dry in Saudi Arabia when you're Wayne Rooney. Though you can go. There are certain places you can go. Is there? Yeah, I did, I did not know that. We'll have to look into that for Qatar 2022 as well. Who, of course, said that there's going to be a hundred percent tax on alcohol. Yeah, yeah only, for, only for the locals, though, wasn't it? Oh, right, okay. I think so, yeah. I think that was the uh, stuff that came out later after that. It was like, oh, you know, well, I realise you haven't paid any attention to this um, football fan about the fact that, you know, people are literally dying to build these stadiums so that we can go there and have a month cavorting in the sunshine and drinking. But as soon as they doubled the price and the booze, you're like, wow, this is ridiculous. They never get the World Cup. It's the only thing I cared about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, not a bad weekend. The uh, rugby, the FA Cup, and far more importantly, a penalty shootout in the FBD League. The, the most important thing. Fair play to Connacht Council, to the GEA in that part of the country for just saying to themselves, listen, screw whatever the actual rules are here. As soon as this thing is done, as soon as it's a draw, we're going straight to a penalty shootout here. Not a free-taking competition, a penalty shootout. This is the best way to create drama. This is the best way to get us caring about the FBD League. Actually, sorry, that's, that's a lie. The FBD League should always be cared about yeah. by, by everybody, really. And we had a moment of drama here which saw a, a brilliant conclusion uh, to, to a game that was actually one of the, the stranger games, by, by all accounts. Leitrim scoring 2-1 when they were a man down uh, for a lot of that second half kind of launching this huge comeback against Mayo and then getting it down to a penalty shootout. So uh, it's, a, it's a good old start. That is uh, a Mayo man sending the Leitrim keeper the wrong way in front of an Evan Regan? crowd. That is Evan Regan, yes. Uh, like a very strong Mayo team going out there yesterday as well. It's not like this is the preseason competitions are just kind of being played amongst the rookies in Mayo, for example. It was a, it was a strong team that James Horne sent out. And when you get a finish like that, it's great. And immediately the GEA need to look at that and say, this is where we need to go Yeah, for... Kill replays, maybe do two periods of extra time if you want to, but uh, penalty shootouts are the way to go. Terry Highland, the Leitrim manager, not quite sure? Not quite sure. Well, I'm not quite sure if uh, Terry Highland is sure or not, to be quite honest. Just looking at his quotes on the back of the Irish Daily Star, uh, Carlo Kane says, Terry Highland was nonplussed with the shootout, which replaces the free-taking competition. Are we all using nonplussed in the ironic sense now ever since Tony McGregor, is it? Well, that's not two-plussed, is I it? I know, but I mean, it's like we're just reintroducing it. Cause it's like, I'm non-two-plussed. You, I mean, you would not really have read about GA managers being nonplussed too often. I mean, we have to give them credit for reintroducing... Even the proper usage, as well as the non-two-plussed. I, I, I think you're doing uh, Tony McGregor a bit of a, a, a... Too much of a service there, I think. Uh, so Highland said, I prefer free kicks because it is one of the skills of our sport. A penalty is another skill of our sport. I, that quote just doesn't really make sense to me. I don't, I don't know what he means by that. But if the penalty is another skill of our sport, then let's just pick that skill. Is that a typo? Is it not, not a skill of our sport? Um, maybe, but a penalty is a skill of our sport. I mean, yeah. like people have designated penalty takers... There was conversations last summer about Dublin's penalty taking and who should be the right penalty taker. This is part 
of Gaelic football and it's a far more exciting manner than uh, the free-taking competition which to be fair gave us plenty of excitement last year in the early stages of the calendar year because it was the only thing we had to talk about exactly there wasn't um, mad rule changes uh, Donegal have pretty much decided we don't think this is going to happen so we're not we're not playing with these rule changes what Donegal has said that? yeah I, I, I see uh, the was like ah look this isn't going to happen we're not, we're not paying any attention to it yet well, we'll see. We'll see. We're like two weeks away but from he's this. He's right, though, in a way. So you go through the whole league campaign and then you've got to change <coughs> your rules again. OK, so ultimately, the end goal you're preparing for is a championship. So uh, I guess, for, from a Donegal perspective, that's what they want to, to succeed in. Like, the, the thing is, uh, at, at what point does it become a championship rule change? If you're instigating it for the league this year, like, I'd like to know what then is the, the next step. Is it sort of a, another special congress this time next year where they're like, it could be league and championship this yeah, year? Yeah, November, wouldn't it? So, uh, October, November this year after the championship. Actual, the big, big congress. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how they should start referring to those congresses, just with a number of... Super congress. Exactly. That is a super, super congress this November. We can have a quick look at some of these penalties here. Um, this uh, was recorded from the sideline by Mayo GAA. So there's the first one, top of the top of the back stanchion. Jason Doherty was first. Fergal Bolan was second. Evan Regan is third. Nice. Has anybody missed? There's no sound on this, so... Um, the look at well, I mean, Come on, look, exactly. There you go. Happy days. I kind of uh, kind of wish I was there now yesterday. The, the counties who pull out of pre-season tournaments are really not doing their, their fans much because you, you get scenes like that. That game was live on uh, Midwest Radio. That's how starved people are for um, Gaelic football this time of year. They'll do full live commentary of that. And, and they were rewarded with their full live commentary by the first ever penalty shootout in the history of Gaelic football. Yeah, it's iconic. It yeah. might not be. There might have been penalty shootouts back in the day. But. And the thing is, you'll uh, hear many more excited uh, utterances from local radio commentators, many more huge, huge crowds for games that ultimately don't matter a jot in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Which is a huge shame, of course. But uh, ultimately, this is what we've got to live with. I'm not going to lie, I was um, thinking yesterday, what are we going to do on the show today? And it was like, well, maybe we should just boycott the FA Cup because really, it's a steaming pile of nonsense. It matters not a jot to anybody anymore. It's like they, they've completely debased that tournament from the glory days. It's a bit like the Railway Cup. It'd be like us like spending doing live commentary on a Railway Cup match if it was ever brought back again. Well, know, the Railway Cup of... has a level of intrigue because you're creating super teams. <clears throat> The FA Cup. It doesn't. The super teams become it, less it, super. It doesn't. It, it, uh, it doesn't have any intrigue. It's the exact level of... It used to be this important thing that loads of people really believed in and went to, and now no one cares about it. And then, all of a sudden, Porrick Ammon scores and is on the back and front of every newspaper in Ireland and England. Should you hold up your quickly, quickly there? Yeah. Pl- plenty, of, uh, plenty of puns as well on the name Ammon, which is great. Yeah, we'll get to the, we'll get to the puns in detail in a minute, but um, there you go. So... The only ones who don't have them are the, uh, the Irish Times, who uh, have a rugby picture from Saturday on. So we're going to bring you through the papers, the uh, football stories with Daniel Harris. We'll talk about Claude Puel, who um, didn't play his best team, obviously, for Leicester, as Porrick Ammon struck late to give them a 2-1 win. Andy Dunn's going to join us to talk about the weekend rugby. Big, big win for Munster. A very controlled performance, a very creative performance, and um, showing you a little bit about the versatility that Joey Carby has by him finishing the game at 15 and being absolutely brilliant there as well. NFL wildcard weekend was pretty wild. The first game was a bit of a damn squib, but after that, everything else got um, pretty close and very interesting and entertaining. So uh, it leaves us in a pretty good spot ahead of next week as well. We'll talk about that one with Carlson around about five past nine. And then Park Almond, the hero of the day, is going to join us uh, a little bit later on as well, if he wakes up. Uh, Carlo Rising, Almond turns giant killer as Newport dump Leicester out of FA Cup. 
Park Gammon's career is pretty amazing. He's 30 and he's a professional footballer. He's been a professional footballer for the best part of a decade. Started out at Shamrock Rovers, um, ends up at uh, Sligo Rovers, played for Kildare County, who don't even exist anymore at one point, and then plays in Portugal and, and flits about the lower leagues. But, like, the, I mean, you know, he's a professional footballer. That's what he does. It's like if you were asking Park Gammon when he was 10, do you want to be a professional footballer? Like, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, and... The idea that the cup doesn't matter a jot, as you say, kind of is turned on its head immediately when you see a moment like this. Uh, a team stuck in the middle of League Two managing to pull out a massive result like this. I did see their manager speaking in the aftermath saying, well, why couldn't you do it against whoever it was, maybe Tranmere last week or against uh, Shrewsbury last week? And you can do it against uh, Leicester, all right, it seems. But, uh, and like, Spurs last year in the cup? Uh, Spurs last year in the cup. That, w- that was rather heartbreaking. They were in a very similar situation and I think it was Harry Kane equalised to send it to a replay. I think Ahmed had actually scored and then Spurs win the, the replay 2-0. So Newport County are kind of geniuses at this sort of thing. They know exactly how to negotiate a third-round tie and potentially a fourth-round tie. He was saying on Saturday that uh, bring on United, basically, should they, they win the game, and they did win the game. At Old Trafford, that's what you want. You want to be able to go away to one of those big games. Maybe you want them at home, do you? I guess you do, don't you? I, I really like the idea of uh, Manchester United going to lower division grounds. I, I think that kind of just looks better on television, I think. It, it, if you want to use the, the crappy phrase magic of the cup, that is what the magic of the cup is. That's the only thing we can cling to nowadays. And of course, you know, you're going to get more money if you get to go to Old Trafford, which is great and all. But I think they'd love to, they'd love to take um, Manchester United to Rodney Parade. Yeah. Uh, Alan flies high on magic of the cup. That's him uh, jumping, having scored the penalty for the 2-1 win. Um, and yeah, that's the lead on the back of the Irish Independent this morning. The lead picture is from the Connacht-Munster game on Saturday night. Munster well primed for Crunch European Showdown. This is um, essentially a preview of the weekend's rugby action. Club keen for Keita to regain confidence. So um, you were saying that uh, you're not having any of Jurgen Klopp's puffery around uh, Navi Keita. Oh, he's amazing. He's going to be a brilliant option for us. You're like, nah, this is crap. I'm not sure you're very much misrepresenting my opinion on Navi Keita. I'm a big Navi Keita fan. But you just think that at some point, he's a bust. It's, it's certainly, when you, when you listen to uh, a lot of people who are in the know about Liverpool at the moment, at, right now you'd have to say that the Navi Keita situation hasn't worked out too Guys well. on Twitter with ITK in their handles. Yeah, exactly. Those. They're the big insiders, right? Yeah. Indy Kayla News says uh, Navi Keita has been a bust for Liverpool, so I'm going to go ahead and agree with Mr. Indy Kayla. But, but at the moment, you would say that he's going to struggle to get into the team, and I would say that that has more to do with the form in front of him. Like We, we spoke about Wijnaldum here last week and the idea that Fabinho and Keita were brought in and it was going to eventually just nudge the likes of Jordan Henderson and Gigi Wijnaldum out of that Liverpool starting eleven, and that hasn't happened, obviously. Now, Fabinho, Fabinho could play at centre-half tonight, actually. There's been some talk about that. Oh, yeah? And he's come in and he's certainly uh, negotiated his way into the Liverpool starting eleven on more occasions over the last couple of months than Naby Keita has, despite the fact that at the very start of the season, it looked like it was going to be the other way around. Like, Keita played pretty well against Spurs early on in the year, and it looked like he was going to become a fixture in his team. I'm a massive Keita fan, and I'm saying giving him time. I would say give him time, and Klopp was saying that as well. Uh, it could just be a next-season thing before we see peak Naby Keita. All right. The uh, front of the Racing Post is a picture of Battle Over Diane, who won the Lawlers in Nace on Sunday, and has been slashed from 16-1 to to 6-1 to for the Ballymore Novices Hurdle at Cheltenham. Uh, after the success in the Grade 1 Lawlers of Nace Novice Hurdle on Sunday, 2-1, to was the price that Battle Over Doyen went uh, off at on Sunday. And in retrospect, well, that might have been um, printing money. You could have bought that on the back of the Racing Post. Is Reds <coughs> vulnerable to hungry wolves? 
Um, so, are they? I don't know what's going to happen in this game. Of course they are. It's, uh, the, as you said correctly... How, how hungry are Wolves? I would say they're very, very hungry. Could, could this not cap off a remarkable season? Like, they're safe. Yeah, or, but what do you do if you're like, you're like... I suspect you're not putting out your strongest team if you're Wolves. Why not? Because that's the way football has gone, Owen. They don't give a for the uh, Magic of the Cup you can probably make more money by finishing two not, spots not everything's higher. about money well it is some things are about poetry and some things are about romance yeah I mean they are you know, Santo poetry and romance, romance. Right? poetry and romance football is a business Owen it's a business well, especially for a club like Wolves who have been bought with the express intention of making loads of money well, but it, not really, though. Yes, it's I mean, that's, the, all, that's all the point of it's also with, money. It's also with the express intention of having success, and maybe that is to money. make some money. Yeah. And going deep in the FA Cup, I mean, like two years ago, Tiny Tempo opened for uh, the FA Cup final. Alan Pardew was dancing on the sideline. That was, like, let's not forget that this decade has pretty, been pretty good to the FA Crystal Cup. Palace. It was Crystal Palace. Yeah, uh, losing yeah. to Louis Van Hal's Manchester United. Yeah, it's been, and that was a, a stunning... Representation. That is the level of that gets you. How important that comp- How are uh, Luis van Gaal and uh, Alan Pardew doing at their respective clubs at the moment? Well, they bowed off into the sunset after reaching that sort of height. That moment of glory. That's the, what we'll always like, have those moments of glory. Apparently, Luis van Gaal has actually found his true calling in life, which is being a pundit. Apparently, he's an absolutely brilliant pundit on Dutch TV at the moment. There's, not surprising. Um, there was a bit where he was explaining how. Um, oh, who did Palace play recently and scored? Was it, did Palace play well against. City, they did. They yeah, beat City, City, the Townsend yeah. Screamer. So he, he explained, but beyond the Townsend Screamer, there was like um, City have an issue with like the depth of their defence and the separation that midfield has, and so good teams can actually flood that area and take advantage of it. And Van Hal explained it apparently very, very simply and clearly. Went, this is where this goal comes from. Watching like the type of analysis that um, I don't know, maybe you get off Sky. I'm not sure. Well, to be honest, if you've got an opportunity to be Manchester United manager instead of being a television pundit, you probably pick being Manchester United manager. I wouldn't say it's his true calling. I would still say he believes his true calling is to be a football manager. But yeah. I think he's got into that stage in life. What if he's actually no good as a football manager anymore? <sighs> like, listen, we, he, he won an FA Cup on that occasion. So this, yeah. this conversation's all been about uh, Van Hal as a positive football man. Well, we do the Irish news first before we get onto the tabloids. We will, yeah. So uh, down, need experienced, heads back, insists Talty. This is, uh, insists Tally. Tally, sorry, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so that's a picture. Is that a picture of from Armagh? It is from the Armagh game. Mm-hmm. It's Jamie Clark. It is Jamie Clark. Back home on Irish soil. Yeah. Ready to wreak havoc uh, all year long. In the glory of the, um, what is the one? McKenna Cup. The Dr. McKenna Cup, no less. Given his correct title. Uh, back page of the Herald is Almond Icing. Carlos Podrick hits the heights as Fox is shocked. And Maguire and Durkin call time with dubs as well as Conor McKeown on the back of the Herald this morning. Gary Maguire and Shane Durkin both calling time on their lengthy inter-county hurling careers. Uh, the back page of the Mirror is It's Super Sunday. League 2 Newport shock Leicester and Irish match winner Amund once united. Uh, on the back of the Irish Daily Mail then is Amund milks it. Carlo native Podrick uh, sh- stuns Leicester City I should say. And then you've also got that story about Wayne Rooney. Intoxicated Rooney arrested in the USA says Matt Lawton. Back page of the Sunday this morning is Tough Nut to Crack. Amund kills off the Foxes. Well, you've also got down to four Dean. Mayo won the GA's first inter-county penalty shootout. And uh, no curfew. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has told Manchester United's players they have no curfew on their Dubai trip. He's underlined the feel-good factor <laughs> by giving responsibility Uh-oh. to his squad. <laughs> it's all going perfectly well until they all get arrested in Dubai. 
it's uh, there's like if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was weighing this up, he could have like taken a leaf out of uh, Dwight Schrute's book from The Office, where he says, "Whenever I'm unsure about whether or not I should do something, I think to myself, would an idiot do that thing? And if an idiot would do that thing, I do not do that thing. And uh, perhaps Ole Gunnar Solskjaer should have thought to himself, would an idiot uh, let his players have no curfew on a warm weather training camp? And I think they probably would. Back page of the Irish Daily Star is history taker and history maker. That's uh, breaking new ground. Males Jason Doherty uh, having a spot kick yesterday in the FBD League. Pretty happy James Horn or pretty emotional James Horn there. I'm not sure is he angry or is he really excited by what's happening there. Uh, Rom to improve, says Jeremy Cross. Romney Lukaku has taken a swipe at Jose by claiming the new boss is a much better one. And, uh, of course, history maker, as I say there. Ammon's the FA Cup hero once again. Yeah. So that's us through the papers. That is all the back pages this morning. Pretty much Porrick Ammon's dominating proceedings on all of them. And uh, on, on the UK back pages as well, I understand, this morning. Yeah, OK. So let's talk about some of the stories that are inside them. Um, talk a little bit about the rugby, obviously. The performance of Joey Carberry is getting a lot of praise at the weekend. Carberry started the game at a half, pulled the strings, and then moved to full-back for the last 20 minutes. Tyler Blendahl came off the bench for Munster and uh, scored a beautiful try. But before the try, it kind of... So that, that um, this decides the game effectively, largely, and um, there's a few chronic errors from Connacht in the build-up to it. They uh, they penalise, they lose their own put-in at the line-out. Peter Amani steals it, then they tackle Amani in the air and give away a penalty. But from the resulting penalty, the ball goes across the pitch, and Joey Carvey puts in this beautiful kick off his left foot that goes the length of the pitch parallel to the sideline to the point where uh, Connacht has to come over and then gets bundled into touch for like a five-metre line-out. And it looks like it's just going to be one of those line-outs that Munster roll them all over the line and go, yeah, thanks very much, we're Munster. But they don't. Instead, they sling it wide to um, Carberry, who breaks the ankle of his opponent and goes through and largely untouched, totally untouched, actually, and wins the game. You're like, ooh, maybe, uh, maybe Lancer were right. Maybe his future is a fullback. Maybe they are right. And maybe, maybe he's going to end up going to Munster. Playing so well at fullback, Todd Blendall comes in, plays out half, and he plays his way out of the World Cup squad anyway, out of the World Cup team anyway. Joey Carberry does out of the World Cup team. Yeah. Well, that's what if he's amazing at fullback? Well, then, then I don't have a decision to make. Like, is it then? What, what is the dilemma then? So, say, if, like, I know that we're getting into the realms of how good does he have to be, right? Well, so is it is it Carberry mm. versus uh, Rob Carney then, or is it Carney versus Jordan Larmer? As in, is he fighting to become Ireland's backup fullback, or is he fighting to become Ireland's starting fullback if he starts playing there right now? Um, the starter. Yeah. Except that every time he's been fit, forever, Joe Schmidt has always picked Rob Kearney. And as he should continue to do. There's been no sign that that's going to taper off anytime soon. But like that idea of Carberry kind of unlocking the Munster backline, I think they kind of needed that over the past couple of weeks. Like Andy Dunn was in here last Monday saying there's an identity crisis in how Munster play. And I think that's kind of largely to do with the selection of the backs. Like what is Van Grand's best team from 11 to 15? Yeah. Uh, from 10 to 15, actually, at this point. Fitness, I think. I think, I, I think. Well, fitness is the thing. But if everybody's fit, I still think there was. Is there a real clear sort of 10 to 15 at this point, particularly after what happened on Saturday night now that Blendahl is now an option? I would say there is, right? And I would say that um, Blendahl won't be an option yet because he needs to come and start and actually put proper pressure on. So uh, like this is, this is conjecture on the basis that Blendahl continues to improve and get to match fitness to the point where um, you know, he's playing as well as he ever did and then actually a little bit better than he did before. So let's assume Carberry's 10. 
Chris Farrell's back, so Chris Farrell will start. Like mm-hmm. um, Chris Farrell will start, and there is talk that Chris Farrell will start for Ireland. Yeah, when he's fully fit, and when everybody's fully fit, which would be, you know, him ahead of Ring Rose and Bundy and uh, Robbie Henshaw, or at least of two of them. It would be Henshaw and Farrell to start. Yeah, would it? Well, I, I think Henshaw's immovable. Is he? I think so. Like I, I, I'm not sure what you're hearing, but don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not. I can't imagine that. But everybody fully fit. Joe Schmidt would even be considering taking Robbie Henshaw out of the team. Now, I think Gary Ringrose is having the season of his life at the moment. I think Bundyaki, every time he puts on the Ireland shirt, has been outstanding as well. So I think it's a very, very hard call to put Chris Farrell above any of those three at the moment. Now the thing is, we've got a long few weeks, big matches coming up. The thing is, Farrell's after picking up a knock apparently at the weekend, so did his centre partner Dan Goggin, so did John Ryan, and you presume there's a few more bumps and bruises as well. The thing is, like I want to have the conversation about Munster being back and Munster reaching those heights after the next couple of European games are done, because it is a six-day turnaround. They do play against Gloucester on Friday night. It's a huge, huge week for them. What do you think about? Do you think about then putting? For those games, blend out in a ten, Carberry in at fullback, Conway on the wing, Earls on the wing. Potentially, but Mike Haley was pretty good against against Leinster, wasn't he? Like I, I think it's uh, pretty harsh. So, like I, I know it, you're, you're doing it to get the best and to make sure that you have Blaine Allen Carberry on the pitch. If that is your aim, that's probably what you do. Um, and obviously, you're shunting uh, Conway out to the wing. Like I, I think it's pretty harsh on either Conway or uh, or Haley to dump them out of the, the starting 15 at this point. Yeah, I think Conway's got to start. But um, that's an interesting uh, selection dilemma that the uh, lads have in Munster. Uh, what a weekend in the NFL, says Sean J. Troy. Can't wait to hear Mike's thoughts on whether or not Flacco should have been given a go at the end of the third quarter. Hashtag my Broncos are shit. Hashtag OTBAM. Thanks for that, Sean. Uh, you can leave your comments for uh, Mike Carlson anywhere on any of the streams, on YouTube or on... Um, Facebook or indeed on Periscope on Twitter and uh, we'll put them to Mike Carlson a little bit later on um, if you were up late or if you weren't up late the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Chicago Bears in Soldier Field uh, Cody Parkey had a kick to win it for the Chicago Bears at the end he got uh, took the kick kicked it through but ooh uh, Doug Peterson had used his last time out and so they've got to do, do it all again mm. it's called icing the kicker it hasn't worked in American football since 2004 in a playoff game a playoff game, but it has worked in the regular season quite a bit recently. Has it? Yeah. Um, Cody Parkey is flaky. The Bears used to have a guy k- kicker called Robbie Gould, but they wouldn't pay him. He kicked thirty-two out of thirty-three for um, the Forty ers this year, like unbelievably good. Mm. Definitely would have made that kick. Well, he that kicker would have had a better chance of making the one-point conversion, whatever it was, six seven minutes earlier. And instead they go for a two-point conversion, presumably because they don't trust him. Now the thing is, that would have sent the game to overtime had he actually nailed that one-point conversion. And we may not be talking about a Bears defeat this morning. I just don't understand that call whatsoever. I'm sure Mike Harrison will be able to explain it a little bit later on. And maybe that kicker is just terrible. So what happened to the kick? The kick, well, the kick hit the post and hit the, up, uh, hit the upright as well. I, it's very rare to he- see hit a double ricochet. And hit the crossbar. Yeah, it's very, uh, very unusual to see a double ricochet. And didn't bounce over. Did not bounce over, bounced right back, and that was that. It was done and dusted. I will say that uh, Mike Carlson called the Chicago Bears last week, and there was only one dissenting voice in the studio here, Jerry, saying that the Philadelphia Eagles were going to do him. Who was that? That was me. 
Yeah. So uh, based on you know a hunch. Well, to be fair, it wasn't based on a hunch. It was based on the fact that Nick Foles is a better quarterback than Mitchell Trubisky. And everybody says that defenses win championships, and they do largely. But did we discount the power of the Philadelphia Eagles' defense a little bit too lightly? I think we did. And I think we also forget that Nick Foles is is he the best backup quarterback that's ever played in the NFL? I think he's in that territory right now. Now, he wasn't amazing last night. Steve Young backed up Joe Montana for a couple of years and he went to the Hall of Fame. So, close. How many, how many Super Bowls did he win? Two. Two. So, what, has Nick Foles got to guide the Philly to a Super Bowl win again this year Maybe to be in that conversation? Won. Maybe he's only started one. But he, I, he would have three rings, I think. The thing is, if they lose last night, Foles is gone. Does this now sort of change their view on whether or not they're going to keep him? They're going to have to pay him like $20 million for him to sit on the bench. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. If they win, like, if they win next week against uh, the Saints, that would be ridiculous. So, Yeah, they're not, though. It's, I mean, there's a chance. Thing. There is a chance. Uh, a... That's, that's my prediction for this week. You're, I'm the one descending voice this week against the Philadelphia Eagles saying the, the Saints are going to beat them. Uh, it, was, it was like a, it was an amazing weekend. I, I got on the Texans bandwagon very early in the weekend, and then I realised that that was not the bandwagon to be on. And then I got on the Ravens bandwagon yesterday. Oh, evening. I see. You're the, you're the cold, clammy kiss of death. Well, maybe. But when I got on the bandwagon, the kind of comeback started. And I see that texts are saying that Joe Flacco should have come on, or should, asking should Joe Flacco should have come on. But I don't think that would have been the right course of action. What day of the week are we going to pick your bandwagon for next week, this week? Tomorrow? We do, we do it tomorrow? We'll pick a bandwagon, uh, bandwagon Tuesday coming your way tomorrow. Uh, OK, let's move on and talk about football. Daniel Harris is with us to talk about the uh, magic of the FA Cup. Um, Daniel, one of the things that has happened in this part of the world is that we have uh, an Irish hero uh, knocking Leicester City out of the FA Cup. So that has redeemed the FA Cup a little bit in terms of our appetite for covering it this morning. Because I have to say, at one point yesterday, <coughs> I was going to go, what's the point in covering this anymore? Nobody seems to care about it. Can you make us care about the FA Cup? Um, I think so. I mean, I care about the FA Cup as a football writer, as a football supporter. And I think the reason why you should care about the FA Cup is society has generally agreed that history is something that is interesting and important and tradition is something that is interesting and important. And the FA Cup is the oldest cup competition of the world. It has some of the greatest lore, some of the greatest mythology and some of the greatest happenings in football history have happened in the FA Cup. So when you play in the FA Cup, the weight of all that history um, should be on your mind and it should be something that people think about. But to bring it down to more actual tangible levels, um, if you're a football supporter, football supporting a football team is obviously about going to the game with your mates, with your family and passing it down and being given football by your parents and all that kind of thing. But in terms of like the actual minutiae week by week, it's moments. It's moments of joy, moments of surprise, moments of shock. And the FA Cup gives you that more than generally more than league football. Because if you think about it, most teams don't experience success. Um, they don't win league titles and they're not struggling against relegation either. Whereas the FA Cup is an opportunity for any team to go and win something or to cause an upset. And those moments are the things that stay with you. So when you see managers resting players for cup competitions, like Claude Puel did yesterday, uh, you see him resting his players to compete for, what, seventh place in the league. You think... What on earth are you doing? Do you understand what football's about? Because it is not about preserving James Madison, um, preserving Ben Chilwell to try and finish seventh in the league, which gets you nothing, versus trying to give your supporters moments that they'll talk about forever. No one's going to regale their grandchildren with tales of the battle for seventh place. I'm a Villa fan, and Villa picked um, not quite a fully uh, second team against Swansea on Saturday afternoon, but largely, like, uh, not their first team. And... Whatever about uh, competing for seventh place in the 
Premier League. Villa are essentially competing for maybe seventh in uh, the Championship at this point. And it's like, it was very hard to get excited about the FA Cup as a Villa fan this weekend. Yeah, I totally understand that. If you're if the if the club aren't asked about it and they're not giving you a team to be asked about, then it's difficult to find the motivation to be asked about it. I totally understand that. But the club should be bothered about it. And to come back to Puel, because uh, I feel like he's done this before, and it's not just in the FA Cup either. In consecutive seasons, uh, Leicester have played Manchester City in League Cup quarterfinals. Puel has picked a second team. They've lost on penalties. And in so doing, they've missed out on semi-finals against Bristol City and Burton Albion. Now, to me, that is a major misunderstanding of what football is about and what managing a football club is about. And I guess uh, I'm agitated about it and I'm not a Leicester fan. If I was a Leicester fan, I'd want to see the back of him just for that. Because you want to give your fans things to remember. You want to give your fans things to talk about, things to be excited about. And the FA Cup gives you that. And I say that as a Manchester United supporter. Let's talk from the point of view of a supporter. I've seen my team win two Champions Leagues. I've seen my team win uh, 13 league titles. But some of the greatest moments and some of the greatest disappointments I've ever had have been in the FA Cup because the FA Cup is is great. And it doesn't even matter necessarily if you go on to win the FA Cup. People who've, watched it, people who've been watching Manchester United and watching football a lot longer than I have will tell you that one of the greatest days they've ever had in football was talking about Villa when United came from um, 2-0 down to beat Villa 3-2 at Villa Park on a Sunday evening um, uh, in 2002. And people, as I people, the pitch invasions, great goals, excitement. And um, the fact that people who've seen their team win everything and been doing it over a period of 30 years picked that as a great moment tells you that it's not about necessarily what you win because United didn't win the FA Cup that season. It's about the moments of unbridled and unparalleled excitement that you could never have predicted that you enjoy. And that's, that's what football's about. In terms of the magic moments for Leicester this season, uh, like they've obviously delivered with the results against Chelsea and Manchester City over the festive period. Like, do you think that an FA Cup run would kind of fulfil those fans with far more joy than those two huge, huge results over the Christmas period, knowing that it was kind of a club that wasn't in crisis, but certainly a manager that was in crisis? And you say you want to see the back of him, and there were certain people who were calling for the back of club who had a lot of fans saying that they wanted to see him gone before those two sensational wins over the Christmas period, that there is obviously a cynical way of looking at this, but there is also the romance, if you want to use that word, of what they did against Chelsea and Manchester City during the Christmas period, that it's, it's not all doom and gloom around Leicester. No, it's not. And, but I think that those results just elevate the level of dickishness of what he's done in the cup competitions. Leicester are precisely the, cup, the kind of team that should be going balls out in the cup because they can beat anyone on a good day. They've got players good enough to give any team difficulty. And in the cup, you can easily sneak through to the final or the semi-final without actually playing anyone. So you only, in theory, you may, not in theory, but you may only need to beat one or two decent teams to win the FA Cup. Leicester have literally just proved that they're capable of doing that. So it's not a case of, well, it's one or the other. It's a case of how much more so should they be going out for the Cup because they've shown that they can beat Chelsea and City on a good day. So I don't really look at it like that. I mean, perhaps Puel's thinking, well, he, got to, he finished eighth with Southampton, got to the League Cup final, got beat unluckily and still got fired. But I just... I'd like to know what he's trying to achieve with this kind of behaviour because I'm finding it hard to fathom. The, the real magic of the cup occurred on Friday night when Tottenham Hotspur were 6-0 up against Tranmere Rovers and brought on Harry Kane who scored to make the score 7-0. Rodney Marsh called the decision classless. Maurizio Pochettino said it's important to show respect to the people here so they could see Harry Kane who is an icon in English football. It is difficult in that division to see it. That is a true magic of the cup, Daniel, isn't it? 
And the mag- I agree that the, there is a certain element of the magic of the club of uh, plucky underdogs getting ad- absolutely gubbed by a top-level team. I mean, that, that, that is always enjoyable, entertaining, amusing. If I wanted to take lessons on class, I certainly <laughs> would not take them from Rodney Marsh. And I'd be much more inclined to take them from Maurizio Pochettino. But there's this kind of element, this notion of classiness in football. I mean, it's a load of bollocks, really, isn't it? Um, football's not about class. It's about pleasure, enjoyment, entertainment, edge. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's about the opposite of class. And what does class mean anyway? It's this kind of peculiar British concept, almost, that sort of exists in order to distinguish people that don't have any specific identity without making it about class. And that's the element, like, notions of class have not done our society any good at all whatsoever, anyhow. But, yeah, um, I do think there's an interesting question that Rodney Marsh was not posing about when a team should declare, should a team ever declare. I remember feeling it as a supporter when United beat Arsenal 8-2, thinking, this is getting a bit silly now, this is almost uncomfortable to watch one supposedly top-level team smashing another supposedly top-level team. It's just too easy and perhaps they should stop. And I've seen it happen in person when... When United played Barcelona in the 2011 European Cup final and Barcelona scored the third goal, like I think it was before an hour, and I was thinking this could get very, very unpleasant here. And they actually declared. And I thought, well, I want United to declare in that situation now. Probably not. And Spain did it against Italy in the, in the European Championship final in um, 2012, I think maybe it was. Yeah. Uh, so should Spurs have declared against Tranmere? Or is it patronising for Spurs to declare against Tranmere? Do Tranmere fans want to see the captain of England, like Pochettino says, or not? And I think in the end, like, it probably doesn't matter. Like, when they look back on it, are they going to think, gosh, it was 7-0 when it could have been 6-0 if only they hadn't have brought on Harry Kane? <laughs> or I got to see Harry Kane play. Like, there's just as much chance that they'll think, yeah, fine, 6-0, Harry Kane, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a very big deal. I definitely don't think it's a good enough reason to call someone an arsehole or a classless arsehole and... I also might posit that calling someone a classless arsehole for something like that might paradoxically make someone a classless arsehole. <laughs> who's, who's to say? Yeah, I think if you're a kid and you're from Tranmere and your team is 6-0 down and Harry Kane comes on and scores, you're going to skill the next day going, ooh, Harry Kane is amazing. Like, that's, I, you know, I think... Um, uh, I think when Robin Van Persie started his inner child as the reason that he wanted to sign for Manchester United all those years ago, it's fair enough to say that the inner child of everybody in that Tranmere crowd is actually happy enough watching... England's best player at the World Cup last year scoring on their ground for like the only time they're ever going to see it. Yeah, I think I think I think that's fair. And um yeah, I mean Rodney Marsh, what are we gonna, what can we do? Um struggling without George Best. <laughs> well, the the high sparrow of class, Neil Warnock has been out over the course of the weekend uh questioning the class of Liverpool Football Club, saying that they didn't let them know that uh, Nathaniel Klein was going to Bournemouth instead of Cardiff. For some reason, uh, nobody in Liverpool decided to pick up the phone to poor Neil Warnock to tell him that his, uh, his bid for him to take him on loan for the end of the season wasn't going to be successful. Uh, what do you think is, is Neil Warnock the correct person to be listening to when it comes to judging class? <laughs> there is, yeah, there is nothing more classy than bitching in the media about someone else's lack of class. Um, and the thing is, what was also kind of weird about that was he made it about himself because Klein had once played for him. And it's just, well, maybe, why would Klein, like, you can never chastise a footballer, in my opinion, for doing what is best for their career and doing what they want to do. He wasn't obligated to go and play for Cardiff because he'd said he was going to when a better offer came in that didn't involve playing for Cardiff and didn't involve playing for, for Neil Warnock. So I found that a bit weird because of 
why would you why would you bitch to the media about that? You're not going to look good about it, and you're just going to look like you're desperate for a right back and desperate for that particular right back who you haven't got. And um, the fact that he called someone that called someone else classless, as was as with Rodney Marsh, is itself a fairly classless endeavour and uh, makes him look like Neil Warnock, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it's Neil Warnock, right? So my expectations are so horribly, horrifically low, and yet this year he's actually done a reasonable job at Cardiff, all things considered. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done a fair job. Whether, like, the, the kind of, the manner in which he can conduct himself is not particularly relevant, or not irrelevant at all, to how well his football team are doing. And I agree, he's got very little to work with, and they might stay up. And um, if, if he can manage to stay up, it will be a really significant achievement, because certainly before the season... I wouldn't have thought anyone wouldn't have had them as favourites to finish bottom of the table. I think they probably will go down. But until this point, after a really bad start, he's done a pretty good job. And the fact that he keeps getting jobs and keeps doing some things well suggests that, yeah, he probably does know something about organising a football team. And that is fine. But um, bitching in the press about someone else's classlessness and having the audacity not to want to play for him is slightly odd. One of the other stories that uh, people have seen over the course of the weekend is Cesc Fabregas's emotional uh, departure from the pitch at, uh, in the Chelsea match on Saturday evening. Obviously going to Monaco is going to be probably his last game uh, in English football. And across the papers this morning, there is sort of an appraisal of where Cesc Fabregas ranks in the great midfielders of the world, or certainly the great midfielders of the Premier League era. And despite the fact that he's got 110 caps for one of the greatest national teams you've ever seen, I think the general consensus, Daniel, is that uh, he is categorically a rung below those great Premier League midfielders, that perhaps there was a sense of underachievement, I dare say, about Cesc Fabregas. And it's Jeremy Wilson who suggests this morning that perhaps if he stayed in the Barcelona Academy as a kid instead of uh, you know falling for the graces of Arsenal and Wenger at the time to take him to the next level perhaps that regret might not be there or this debate might not be there at all uh, I don't think I agree with that um, he's, one, he's one of the best but I'm not sure that he could ever have been quite the best, let's say he stays at Barcelona and they've still got that midfield of uh, Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta he still doesn't fit into it and um, that's not because he's not a brilliant player it's because that, those three is probably the greatest midfield of all time that were all brilliant players in their own rights that complemented each other perfectly and when he went as a fully developed, fully formed player, it didn't quite work because he wasn't what they needed. He's, they didn't need another midfield player. They needed a striker. And he wasn't that. Um, so I don't think that's right. And um, I think, say, let's say, he probably is a rung below Roy Keane and Paul Scholes and Patrick Vieira, probably. I wouldn't have him as that far below Gerard and Lampard, though. But he's just a different kind of player. So... He's one of the greatest passers we've ever seen in England. I mean, certainly one of the greatest passers that I've ever seen in the time I've been playing football. I think he probably had the misfortune to be at Arsenal when Arsene Wenger, I wouldn't say he took his eye off the ball because that suggests he wasn't concentrating, but when he misevaluated what it took to be successful. So the early Wenger teams where he had a really good mix of power and pace and skill and stamina and strength and guile, he would have been absolutely brilliant in those teams. And we'd probably be talking about a player of a slightly different level because the thing that's missing from his resume, as Alan Sugar might call it, is that he um, he never quite did it in the biggest games. He didn't really win very much at Arsenal, but that wasn't particularly on him. That was that in that kind of period where he was running that team, 
Wenger just filled the midfield with players like him. He didn't really have any wing, he didn't really have any wingers and he didn't really have any power alongside him in midfield. And he strayed from the template that had brought him success, where he had in the first place he had Vieira and um, Petit, and then he had skillful players around that and pace around that, like Overmars and Burkamp. And then the team subsequently that did well, that he was just part, he was a part of the team that, that won the league in 2004. He had Burkamp, he had Henri, um, he had Ray Parler still. Was Ray Parler in that team? Um, he had Robert Pires. He had a really good mix of all the different attributes that combined to make a great football team. But when the team became his, when Vieira left, he just had players who were good, but less good versions of him and no variety. So he had Rosicki and he had Kaleb and um, then he had Marouane and Shamak and yeah. players. That was, and that was once Arsenal started building the ground, they didn't have money for players. And I think Fabregas suffered for that. But so it's for that reason that I would say he's not on the top tier, Can but only for that reason. And had, had he played five years earlier at Arsenal, I think we'd be talking about someone of that of that level. Give us your tiers. Uh, Vieira, Keane, Skulls is the top tier. Vieira, Keane, Skulls are my, are my top tier with uh, Lampard and Gerrard just underneath that. And then Fabregas. If you offered me... Yeah, if you're, uh, I guess maybe Fabregas slightly underneath that, but not very far underneath that. It would just Fabregas would depend more on the kind of team that you had, yeah. Probably. Because Lampard, Lampard's going to give you so many goals that Fabregas would have to do something immense to be worth that. But if you had three strikers with pace and you had Fabregas, you would be absolutely laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. What were you going to say? Uh, just on on the Arsenal point there, like you, you speak about the crap players that he had around him, but at the same time he did have the likes of. Uh, Robin van Persie and Samir Nasri he also kind of went out the departure gate with him as well like you do wonder to what extent was the Cesc Fabregas departure to Barcelona at the time just the sort of opening of uh, of the, the Watergate at the time just to allow these players time and time and time again to leave and Arsenal to become a selling club yeah I mean it's back to that building of the ground that they they spent all their money on that and it was unfortunate I mean perhaps they should have planned it better but there was things that they didn't foresee when they built that ground. They didn't foresee the oligarchs, they didn't foresee Abramovich coming, and they didn't foresee the television money increasing, and they didn't foresee um, Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi coming. Um, and that sort of changed the envelope, because when they decided to, to commit all that money to building the ground, bums on seats were the principal source of revenue. But that seat in, in the process of building that ground, TV started to overtake that, and teams started to acquire ridiculously rich benefactors who were allowed to plow all sorts of money in, despite any kind of notions of competitiveness and, and filth. So they didn't see that coming. And so they got overtaken in the process. Whereas if they just invested in 2004, they'd have a better ground in, High, in Highbury than the one they've got now in Emirates, which is one of the worst of the new grounds. And they'd probably have at least one more league title. And who knows what else they might have had. And the other thing they didn't foresee is they didn't foresee where sponsorship was going to go. So they basically sold everything to Emirates. Then um, and Emirates, were, they couldn't get any other sponsors. And then in the meantime... Uh, Manchester United started sponsoring the seats and the official partner for this and the official partner for that and Arsenal were tied and the training gear and Arsenal were tied into Emirates for all of this stuff so I think probably there were certain things that they could have foreseen like the television money like the sponsorship issues that they didn't foresee that would have enabled them to strengthen that team despite building the ground and there was other things that they didn't foresee like the, 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 the influx of dirty money into football that then meant that they were far less financially powerful despite building the new ground that perhaps they couldn't have foreseen. But that con- that confluence of circumstance means that they couldn't extract the most from 
Fabregas, from Van Persie, from Nasri, because they couldn't build the team around them. And yeah, what you see now is Arsenal are in fifth place in the league. No one would be surprised if they're overtaken in fifth place in the league and what might happen after that. And they need more new players than they've got money to buy. And uh, it's very hard to see at what point Arsenal are going to become a team that challenge for the title again because of that. I don't remember this uh, very well, but the 29-2010 season, I'm just looking up um, his stats on Wiki. He only played 27 league games, scored 15 goals. He played eight games in Europe and scored four goals. So 36 games and 19 goals that season was probably his best season at Arsenal. Played one more season at Arsenal and then left. But played seven seasons at Arsenal and was watching the whole place crumble and Barcelona come and say we're interested. I think fair enough. You're allowed to leave at that point. You, you know, as a 17-year-old, you were hyped up. I'm not like, saying he's not allowed to leave. I'm just saying that other people looked at what he did and was like, that guy has made a name for himself. Yeah. He made absolutely the right career move. Yeah. And look at him now. What, what, no do you, what do you think of him as an Arsenal fan? Cesc Fabregas was my favourite football player for a so while. He broke he your heart. He is the only footballer I've ever got on the back of a jersey. Right, so he broke your heart. He broke my heart. Yeah. Whatever age I was at the time, like... 22. <laughs> Still breaking my heart, says Crabbergas. I was crying as he was walking off the pitch on Saturday. You have so bo- once complimented my wife's handbag. In <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, I didn't hear it. Pardon me? Say that again. He once complimented my wife's handbag in a club. All oh, right, wow. That's so good. There we are. Uh, what did he say? Um, nice handbag. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very, it was quite, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this. It wasn't quite a cool handbag. It was, it was like a packet of Skittles. It was designed like it was a packet of Skittles handbag. Very good. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's it my favourite of my wife's handbags. <laughs> well, this took a twist. You want to talk about Cantona briefly? Oh, very briefly. It's, it's kind of more of an observation as anything, really. It's, I'm not sure is there anything really to kind of question about it, but uh, he was in the, the Sunday Times magazine yesterday, uh, A Life in Today, a, a segment they do every Sunday, and Eric Cantona is the one they pick. He talks about the foods he eats, the times he gets up. He, he loves singing. Uh, so he says the, the idea uh, at, Christ- or at breakfast time, I should say, he likes to stand up and sing. My songs are surreal. The words come out automatically. To me, control is boring. Some people get freedom from drinking alcohol. I lose control when I sing. Uh, naturally, like he talks a lot about food and stuff, but kind of coming back to sport for a moment, he talks about uh, the Kung Fu kick. And he's like, people think I lost my temper and got so many red cards, but it's a myth. The Kung Fu kick wasn't me. It was the testosterone, but I don't regret it. I wouldn't have done it harder, but I wouldn't have done it any less hard either, he says. And then goes on to talk about how uh, he loves risotto. And he says the best advice he was ever given was that Johan Cruyff said that you have to anticipate and see everything before you receive the ball. I apply it to life. The advice he'd give is receive advice like love. And what I wish I'd known is when you meet somebody, it is because it is the right time to meet. It is the most Eric Cantona interview I've ever read, Daniel. Yeah, um, what a man. I also really like the bit where he talks about when he goes to bed and he like arranges to go to bed and spend some time lucid dreaming. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there's always, as ever, there's a lot to think about and uh, a lot to laugh at and a lot to learn from um, when, when, when he speaks. Um, yeah, but the idea that he arranges to go to bed and spend time like li- and spend time lying there dreaming while being awake is uh, is kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, I might start doing that. Daniel, good stuff. Thanks a million. Again, Cheers. Guys. It's uh, Daniel Harris joining us uh, for the first time this new year. Um, Fair play to him for his uh, praise of the FA Cup and the defence of why it matters. Yeah, because it's hard to find people to make that defence. Well, it's it's not really if you look deep enough. Into, it is. into it, that stone-cold heart of yours, you'll find some sort of love for the FA Cup. I mean, it's tough. It's not really. It is tough. It's you can see what... You can see... I totally understand the point he's making about Club Puel, but if, if Puel puts out 
Jamie Vardy and Vardy gets injured and misses three months in that game, right? That could happen in any... It could, match. but it, except that if it happened in the league, that's your job. You're, you're, you're trying to win games in the league, that's your job. And um, the entire future of the club... And, you know, if, you look at, if you look at Villa, right? So Villa have reached an FA Cup final in recent seasons. Um, and they are now an irrelevance when it comes to the Premier League. They, there's that is almost, not the reason why they're an irrelevance, is getting to an FA Cup final. Well, it's not. It's not cause and effect, but it's completely pointless. Would you rather have a team that wins the FA Cup once and then gets... Would you rather be Wigan now, having won their FA Cup, or would you rather a team that was managed properly, that weren't only about trying to win these... I'm not saying it's either or, right? But if, you're, if you are a manager and you have this, this limited number of resources, and if you look at, so look at the playing minutes issue with the Irish rugby team. They have decided that there's a set number of minutes that players can play yep. at their absolute peak to be in peak performance, right? It's probably the same with football. If, you're, if your analysis department is working and stats department is working properly, then like, there are only a certain number of games that you can expect your players to play to their peak performance. Are you going to waste one or two or three or four of those in a cup competition <coughs> and risk relegation or, or, or perhaps maybe? I, I don't disagree with what you're saying in terms of the sports science element of it, but Leicester are not risking relegation. Uh, you talk about the idea of a manager's job. Your job is to, whatever, succeed as much as possible in the league. It is to a certain extent. It is your primary goal. Of course it is, because you play 38 games in that competition every single year. But your goal really is to keep your bosses happy, and their goal is to keep the fans happy so that they keep paying money, so that they keep showing up to the clubs, so that there's no protest, no matter what it is. Well, like, you, you, can, you can take this down as far as you want the, down the garden path. But the point is, a happy bunch of supporters will likely be even happier if you're taking them on this journey, which is the FA Cup. And the term journey, some people kind of balk at, but it kind of is, to be quite honest. I mean, like, if Spurs went and won the FA Cup, they'd be like, geez, remember that night in Tranmere when Harry Kane came, came on as a sub? Like, that's... Uh, there's something sort of strange and unique about that, and that is what the cup brings. Who won the cup last year? Who won the cup last year? It was Chelsea, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I can't actually remember. See, there, there you go. But like, who won the cup the year before? Uh, Arsenal. Arsenal beat Chelsea the year before. Okay, because you're an Arsenal fan. And they beat Aston Villa the year before. And you, okay, so you're an Arsenal fan. So that probably comes a bit easy for you. But last year's cup final, you're not quite sure what happened. Like okay, now you're putting that's different. If I if I remember Arsenal in the FA Cup because, as an Arsenal fan, yeah, fair enough. So will all the fans of that support. It's about the the supporters of that. Who won last year? I'm saying Chelsea here with uh, an air of confidence, which is definitely not misplaced. Who did they beat in the final? Uh, Arsenal. Who's Gordon? Okay, so that's right. did they? Did, they did, yeah, did yeah, Chelsea? Yeah. Beat? Oh my god! Because I remember the year before Arsenal beat Chelsea in the FA Cup final when they were not supposed to do that. And did they just get revenge in the exact same decider so, last yeah. year? Yeah. To be honest with you, yeah. Uh, Go on, tell me about it. 2017. No. Look, 2018 FA Cup final. Yeah, look at the 2018. It's not there. Um, I'm, I'm sure you'll come up with that in a moment, but whoever was supporting the club that won the FA Cup last year will remember but, that. I, I like, say if Wolves went on a journey this year, if Leicester. Chelsea beat Manchester United. Beat United. But there you go. At least I got the correct winners. Uh, and it was, it was Arsenal in the final the year before. Um, like, so there you go. We all know who won the FA Cup. It's a, it's a huge statement of intent and it's yeah. a huge badge of honour. It's not as big as it was. Of course it wasn't in terms of the actual winning of the FA Cup. Football's changed. But there is still a place for it. There is still... Like you can't just automatically dismiss it because it's less important. 
just because it's less important doesn't mean it's unimportant. No, I, and I understand all. I understand the points you're making about um, not dismissing it, but it has been dismissed, and so yes. the reality of the situation is that it needs to be rescued, or else it will just diminish further. Like I actually prefer. So what do you suggest? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But I'm saying that like the reality of where it is now is that like no one cares about it. I care about it. But like you don't. I do. You didn't know last year's final. Oh, I care. Everybody cares about it through the prism of their own team. How did Arsenal lose last year? They <laughs> like this is. I should have really done my uh, my brushing up on this. If we we're going to have this argument this morning. Okay, so how did Arsenal lose last year's cup? Uh, they lost to one of the finalists. Well, at what point of the competition? I think they lost a semi-final to Manchester United. Uh, I want to I say, or was it the Chelsea that no, lost in the semi-final? No, did not play either Chelsea or oh, Manchester United. God. I, to be honest, okay. If, if they had won it, I would have cared about it a lot more. And to be honest with you, last year was the period where every Arsenal fan went through a period of not caring about Arsenal Football Club, remember? No, I mean, come on. Like I, re- like... I remember losing to Atletico in the Europa League semi-final, which perhaps proves your point. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even need that, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> like, the, there was sort of a, an element of not caring about that football club for a while. Mm. And, uh, that, call me a turncoat if you want, and that's more to do with that rather than uh, the FA Cup fatigue. Just call me a crap football fan, basically. Uh, heartbroken by a footballer, our lads thought we were more grown up than that, says Neil Keegan. I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> he bought a bit that you were uh, 23, obviously. Um, so, yeah, Neil, he was 12. What, he, what year did Fabregas leave? Yeah. Fabregas no, left, been older than left, left in uh, 2011. Oh, no, I was a good bit older than 12. <laughs> to be quite honest, I was like 16. Uh, I know, that's fair enough. You're, you're allowed to have a man crush on like a, a little guy who happens to be the best player on the team. Uh, well, yeah, he, he was just the best player in the team, really. It was just, it was also kind of the idea with that I was, I was old enough to kind of remember the debut as well, sort of himself, I want to say Van Persie, Flamini and maybe Kleb all kind of came along and maybe one charity shields a match and I was like, who the hell are all these people? And they were all kind of came along at once. So there was kind of a new generation that were supposed to bring them to great things, but they all left. And he won a World Cup at that point. He was part of the amazing Spain team that won the Euros as well. You're like, ooh, we have somebody that's in the best team in the world who fits in that team. Yeah, that's, that, that is also the kind of galling thing. But that also helped give him the belief that he could go on to, to better things, which he did. He can't, I don't really begrudge him too much. Yeah, what did he win? Well, like he went on to Barcelona winning a couple of Champions Leagues and on to Chelsea. Two Premier League titles with Chelsea since he came back, which is not a bad tally when you think about it. No Champions League. Did he not win a Champions League? La Liga, Copa del Rey, Supercopa, UEFA Supercup, FIFA World Club Cup. So what, did he not make the panels in any year or was he just too late? I don't know, that might have been like Obviously a three-year Obviously he was close-right but did he, he kind of miss Pep. No, he was there for Pep, but yeah. Pep, didn't, um, Pep didn't win everything. It's, uh, it's very, very true. Uh, it's like, to be fair, he won a hell of a lot more than if he'd stayed at Arsenal, obviously. And would he have gone to Chelsea directly from Arsenal? Perhaps he would have. I think he would have found that a little bit harder. All right, let's move on. We're going to get um, a roundup of everything that's going on in the world of uh, sport from Neil in a couple of minutes' time. Andy Dunn is going to join us too to talk about the weekend's rugby, but the Dublin GAA star Shane Carthy has been speaking with Jamie Moore about his recent experience dealing with depression on uh, That's What I Call Sport. You can uh, hear that every Sunday morning live on 98FM. You can watch the full interview on the Off The Ball YouTube channel. Have a look at this. 18 months into that journey of being a senior dub, you're suicidal. Yes, yeah, and uh, and that's uh, 
uh, uh, maybe it sounds funny, a funny thing for people to kind of think, you know, 18 months into my journey and I, and I win in All-Ireland um, and, and, I'm, and I'm feeling suicidal, as you say. Uh, you know, it was, uh, say, a week after the, winning the All-Ireland, straight back down to earth, I was, I was having these thoughts of, of ending my life. Um, I never had a particular plan in mind, but these thoughts never left me. They, ne- they never went too far away from me. And it was a hugely scary feeling. And that's when I kind of coming up to that kind of January was when I start beginning to to have that conversation with myself. I was like, I have to speak up here. I have to like, I I didn't want to do what I was thinking, but I couldn't get away from those thoughts. So at that time, you're thinking, right, I need to speak up. I I need to to talk. And you're coming home from an away game. It's late at night. You arrive into the family kitchen and your family are still awake, which maybe at that time of night was uncharacteristic of them. Yeah. And you would maybe build yourself up to to say something, Mm -hmm. but you couldn't because something really bad had happened. Exactly, and as you say, it was that evening I was playing an under-21s match versus Cork, um, and as my mum and dad did, and still do to this day, travel right around the country to any game it is, whether it's college, school, or school football as it once was then, and inter-county as well, and they went to every single match, and I travelled back in a bus, and in the, in the middle of that time, my mum coming back from Cork with my, with my father at the time, and I received a phone call to say that um, her dad had passed away, my granddad had passed away, and as you said, I was met with my sister and my, my mum and dad in the kitchen at one o'clock in the morning, which straight away was alarm bells ringing for me. I was wondering why they were still up um, because I was a bit after them after the match. And they had just uh, met me with the news that my grandmother passed away. And such was the feeling of numbness and lack of emotion that I could attach to anything at all. I simply acknowledged it. I said, I'm sorry to hear. And I, I just left the room. And that was, like I guess, the first warning sign for my mum and dad and my family in general that something wasn't quite right. They start, They began to see cracks from such a piece of devastating news for me to acknowledge it and just say, I'm sorry to hear that and leave the kitchen was was a strange reaction, to say the least. Yeah, amazing stuff there from um, Shane Carthy in conversation with Jamie Moore. You can see that whole thing on Off The Ball uh, on our YouTube channel. That interview aired on 98FM's Now That's What I Call Sport on Sunday morning. Now, Neil Tracy's here with us this morning to run through uh, what's going on in the world. How are you, Neil? Yeah, not too bad, Ger. How are you on as well? Do you know who won the FA Cup last year? Last year, that was Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. I knew that as well. Who do you support? Uh, United. Right. When was the last time United won the FA Cup? That was 2016. Oh, well, that's an easy one. Yeah, okay. Like, Pardew danced. Who? who yeah, Pardew danced, yeah. Pete Palace. Yeah. Jesse, with the, with the winner, wasn't it? Exactly. All right, do you care about it? Oh, I do. I like, I like the FA Cup. So I like the FA Cup, too. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's been ruined, is my point. It's now almost unsalvageable. I think it is ruined. It's ruined in the year that it's happening. But at the same time, in 20 years' time... People are going to be go like saying like, "Oh, wasn't it great when Newport beat Leicester?" They're not going to go. Remember when Leicester sent out that weak team against Newport in the last? You know, it actually wasn't that weak you, team either. That was the thing. It was like you remember you remember the good stories still down the line. I think. Yeah. No Vardy right. in the squad. They left Ricardo Pereira on the bench. But yeah. other than that, it was. Yeah. There were enough players there who should have been able to win enough. in Newport. I think like each FA Cup season ages well. It just doesn't really look as good when it's happening in front of you. We need to. You're just not a very in the There's moment an person. There's there somewhere. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for us? 
Uh, well, we're starting there, and uh, former Shamrock Rovers striker Padraig Amon was the hero yesterday as Newport County pulled off an FA Cup shock for the ages. The Carlo man scored a match-winning penalty five minutes from time as the League Two side dumped former Premier League champions Leicester City out at the third round. Newport were 2-1 winners at Rodney Parade yesterday, Amon sending Danny Ward the wrong way from 12 yards out to write his name into Cup history. It had looked like Leicester were going to escape with a replay. Rashid Gezai equalised uh, Jamil Matt's header on 82 minutes, but then Mark Albrighton handled in the box and upstepped Amund to coolly slot home the famous winner. And here's what his manager Mike Flynn had to say. He said he had little doubt the goal would go in. Look, I've got to be honest, I fancied him, um, but I didn't get carried away. He's, uh, I thought he was excellent tonight. And look, he had a frustrating day in the year's day. And um, he's going to back this off then. You know, and I told the boys before the game, this is a chance now to get all your confidence back in one hit, every single one of you. And that's what they've gone and done. I'm not sure I even... Yeah, fair play to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Saturday was a pretty predictable round of results, but uh, yesterday produced two other big shocks. Fulham took another step back under Claudio Ranieri. They were beaten 2-1 by League 2 opposition in Oldham. Oldham scoring twice in the final quarter of an hour to come from behind and win. Sheffield United were also the victims of an FA Cup upset. The promotion-chasing championship side lost to non-league opposition for the first time ever in the Cup. They were beaten 1-0 by Barnett, who will now be the lowest-ranked team in the hat for tonight's fourth-round draw. There were no such problems for Premier League champions Man City. They made light work of Rotherham United. They remain in the hunt for four trophies this season after a 7-0 victory at the Etihad Stadium. Elsewhere, Leeds were defeated 2-1 at QPR. Uh, Watford beat Woking 2-0. Doncaster were 3-1 winners at Preston. And Millwall beat Hull 2-1. Tonight, Liverpool will look to bounce back from Thursday's first league defeat of the season. They play Wolves in the third round at Molyneux. Kick-off at 7.45. Liverpool expected to change much of their side after Thursday night's game. Simon Millionet and Alberto Moreno both confirmed to start by Klopp. He also says he doesn't have any worries about how his side will react to last week's defeat against City. Unfortunately, all, all footballers are pretty experienced in dealing with defeats <laughs> because we, um, there are times when you lose games. That's how it is. So in this season, it's now, it's now the first one in the league. Um, we lost three game, four games before, so it's, and we always reacted well. It's, um, no, it was no, no special thing. It was how, we, how, we, how I understood the game, how I saw the game. It was unlucky in decisive moments, but um, that's absolutely okay. Because Elsewhere, Jason McAteer mm. cemented his Irish football legacy yesterday evening. Uh, he was captaining a Republic of Ireland Legends team in Sky's Star Sixes tournament in Glasgow, but he was red-carded during the 1-0 defeat to eventual winners England for kicking Michael Owen up the arse. The pair clashed in the corner of the pitch. Owen was the first to lash out before McAteer threw a leg at his former Liverpool teammate just as the dust was settling. Owen was only yellow-carded despite starting it all. While McAteer was shown red, Owen even admitted himself afterwards it should have been either a pair of reds or nothing at all. But McAteer stood his ground after the game, saying Owen was let off just because he was English. Well, he got it wrong, didn't he? Referee. Well, we come together, we had a little pulling of the shirt, we kind of spun round and then... Michael Owen decided to lash out and you know, I didn't think I wanted to get a, let him get away with it. Referee obviously didn't see it, or he didn't want to see it probably because it was England and Michael Owen. It was more to the point. And, um, you know, I, we kind of made up a little bit and then I give him a little friendly sort of little push up the backside and the referee now. decided to... I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know if you're going to show the actual incident... I mean, if you want to show the incident, I think you'll be able to we, see We've shown it a few times. We can roll it again now we'll for you. 
Here it is, took us through it. And you'll see us obviously we come together in a minute there. But then Michael Owen, how is that not a red card? How is that, how, how is that not a red card? I'll tell you why it's not a red card. Because it's Michael Owen and it's England. And no. because the officials are that bad. He's right, he's right. I mean, he's right. Fair play to him, he's right. McAteer against Holland or McAteer against Owen? Uh, Holland, I'll say. Yeah, but, <laughs> Go yeah. on for me. Elsewhere, uh, James Horan's second spell in charge of Mayo started in dramatic fashion, as can only be expected with Mayo, the aged-out Leitrim in the FBD League, and a penalty shootout yesterday after the sides finished the game level at 2.13 apiece. Mayo won the shootout 4-1, though, with Jason Doherty, Brian Reap, Fergal Boland and Evan Regan all finding the target. Ryan O'Rourke was the only one to net for Leitrim. Mayo will now play the Connacht Champions Galway next time out in the semi-finals. Both Clare teams have finals to look forward to. The Banner Hurlers beat Waterford by one point to secure their place in the Monster Hurling League decider. Clare won 220 to 316. Tony Kelly with a goal and two points. Stephen Bennett with 212 for Waterford despite that defeat. And the Clare footballers will take on Cork in the McGrath Cup final. They had a 117 to 16 win over Waterford. In Leinster, Westmead beat Kildare in football's O'Byrne Cup yesterday. They'll now play Longford in the semi finals. In Hurling, there were victories for Dublin and Carlo in the Walsh Cup. Dublin will now play Galway in the last four. John Heatherton scoring seven points in their two point win against Leash yesterday four of those from play and in Ulster's Ulster football's McKenna Cup Donegal, Armagh, Derry, Tyrone and Cavan all came out on top Monaghan and St Mary's drew and finally Rory McIlroy's 29th season has started with a tie for fourth place at the Century Tournament of Champions the four time major winner struggled to get going on the final day his one under par round of 72 left him on 15 under in total but he was eight shots back from the eventual winner Xander Schauffele Good stuff Neil thanks for that let's uh, talk rugby now here is Andy Friend reacting to Connacht's loss against Munster yeah, they didn't um, didn't leave anything uh, in their tank there. I think that's probably something that uh, we've we've come to expect uh, from this team. They just they empty their tank, mate. They give you everything they got, and uh, we played a good footy side there tonight. Um, good game of rugby. Unfortunately, in those things there has to be a win and a loser, and we ended up on the wrong side of it. Yes, and we know they're a big physical side. We know the way they they try and play. They're you know very strong in the in the forward pack. I thought their kicking game tonight was very good, but I thought our boys, you know, when we when we uh, we we got our double shots in a, in defence, and when we um, you know there's some really good hits out there in defence. When we carried, we carried strong, and we when we could get could get quick ball, uh, we were making holes through them. So it was a good arm wrestle. Uh, you know, and we said there at half time it's going to be the team that loses concentration first and, and breaks and doesn't stick to system that's probably going to lose it and in the end that in fairness was probably us I don't think our concentration levels dropped I think you know, they probably <coughs> lifted it again um, they lifted and fair played them they were, they were clever enough uh, in the way they played that just to keep the pressure on us and uh, there was too much pressure there in the end and, and they managed to get those, those couple of scores Andy Dunn's here with us to talk about this uh, this was a really good game Two fairly well-stacked teams, lots of internationals, and um, a development and an iteration from Munster that we wanted to see. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the best uh, Pro 14 games I've seen between, in terms of interprovincial derbies in recent years. Um, pretty fast-paced. Um, both sides were asking a lot of questions of each other's defence. They, yeah. were, they were stretching um, their defences in terms of how quickly they moved the ball um, how much variation they had how much width they both used a lot of kind of scrag tackles kind of grab shorts and you know they were really stretching defenders in terms of their, their management of space so that encouraged offloads and um, 
you know, I'm, I've been on before ranting on about this, but I think offloads are the future in terms of attack against uh, very organised modern day defences. So we, we saw both sides do that um, with great effect. Um, and I think Munster in particular were um, took advantage of it a bit more often than Connacht and I think just had a probably arguably a, a slightly bigger, stronger um, physical presence on the day and I think it wore down Connacht over time. Um, we'd been talking a good bit about um, Chris Farrell coming back to the Munster mm. team and that just mm. like finally giving us an opportunity to see where they want to go. It, it's too much to say it's all on one player, but he does change. He changes the looks that the opposition expect and he changes what you believe you can do as well. Yeah, he's um, he is so, I suppose, his physique is... is uh, is going to worry people. He's, I think, six four. He's he's got pace. He has an ability. I think the biggest differentiating factor for Chris Farrell is his ability to pass the ball well. Because uh, typically, a lot of guys that big, even if you look at someone like Sonny Bill Williams over in with the All Blacks, they don't use him as a wide distributor. They use him as a great offloader. Yeah. I think Chris Farrell has got both of those things. Um, his his ability is certainly to attract defenders. He can get the ball away from a, from a tackle, even if there's two or three tacklers on him. And if uh, if they sit and, and wait for him, he can spin wide balls off either hand. So he's pretty dangerous. Yeah. Um, but it was his namesake, I think, equally good um, for Connacht. Tom. Tom. I think Tom had a superb game. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Tom Farrell because um, you know, he has definitely had an off Broadway career up to this point. Where um, again, this is the benefit of just allowing players to go off and travel the world a little bit and come back and, and have a role in Irish rugby. Um, he's 25, we were looking up his age before we came on. Uh, you know, There will be a bunch of players who mature at a different rate. Not everybody's going to be 22 straight in the Ireland team like Robbie Henshaw or Gary Ringrose. And these players are going to be the ones that actually create the strength and depth in the competition into the future. Absolutely. Um, I mean... It's in- instructive to look at the likes of Joey Carberry, for example, who didn't get straight into an academy and played AIL club rugby with Clontarf, and that was his route in. And there's lots of guys who, like you said, develop at different times. If the IRFU solely look at their academy structures as a breeding ground, albeit a very healthy one, um, they're missing a trick. And guys like Tom Farrell, who go away, play abroad, um, I think they've probably access to a greater degree of resilience because they've had to go away, they've had to kind of carve out a niche for themselves and they've had to to force themselves to get recognised with regular rugby, with regular good performances in order to get drawn back into Irish professional rugby because there was a school of thought uh, for a good few years there that you missed the boat at 18, you missed the boat and uh, it ought not to be the case. So Tom obviously books that trend and, and when you look at how well he played in a pretty intense derby on, on uh, Saturday, he, um, yeah, he fully deserves the credit he gets. So what, what's his potential, like, is he uh, Ireland contention um, this year, next year, does he need to put a year down of this level of play? I, you know, he, he's got to obviously play regularly in the starting team for Connacht, he's got to play regularly uh, that well. To, I think to push his way into a squad that's pretty heavily stacked at the moment with top players yeah. so um, I don't anticipate he's going to jump straight into Joe Schmidt's reckoning on the back of that performance but um, yeah it was, it was outstanding 
So, and I, don't, I think he deserved man of the match, even though he's on the losing side. I think Joey Carberry obviously was given man of the match, but um, yeah, it was, it was a high point in Tom's career. Yeah, let's talk a bit about Carberry because um, he obviously finishes the game with fullback, and I know that when Leinster were talking about keeping him, they viewed him as a player who would play ten and fifteen. That like his future would be, mm. you know, when Sexton was playing, he could play fifteen, and when Carberry was playing, he could play ten, or when. Um, Carney was playing; he could play ten. So that was their counter argument to that he's not going to get any game time. It's like he's going to get loads of game time because he can play fifteen. And we see him as one of those players. And I was like, no, 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 he's a ten. What are you talking about? He can't play fifteen. No, behold, he's pretty damn good as a fifteen. Well, he's what he's really. I mean, if he played twelve, thirteen, fifteen, or wing, what he's really good at is is uh, broken field running. I mean, that's his natural. Uh, strength as it always has been, and if you if you've got a yard either side, even half a yard either side, as a defender, he's probably going to pick you off. He there is capacity for him to exploit that more in wider channels. Um, but I'd still love to see him. I suppose they, I would hope they would stick with him as a ten. I think he's doing really well there. I think as as the game is changing, and you look at again the the standard bears still being the All Blacks, even though we beat them, I think. They're number one in the world for a reason, and we're just tucked in right behind them, very close at number two. They have uh, they have evolved a game where all their inside backs are probably their most one of their most elusive players. You, you know, Mackenzie has played ten a lot in his career as well as fullback. Barrett, in particular, um, has played both positions. But to get a guy who challenges the defensive line very close in, in, in around the midfield and in around the centre of the field actually helps break your game up usually. So I'd love to see Carberry um, getting plenty more time at 10. I mean, if you could play Carberry at 10 and Carberry at 15, it would be nice as well, but uh, uh, that was some finish on Saturday. He left, uh, who was it? Matt Healy. Matt Healy, yeah, he kind of left him for dead. If everybody's fit in that Munster team, obviously Conor Murray's at 9, who are you playing from 10 to 15? Uh, I would certainly. I would play Carberry at ten. Um, I'd have. I think at the moment I'd have Scannell and uh, Farrell in the centres at twelve and thirteen. Um, Earls uh, Conway and one from about four or five others on the other wing. Uh, I have no idea who I could. Could you go Earls Conway and then Haley at fullback? Yeah, potentially. Yeah, I think. I think. Um, you know, without being too dismissive to back three players. Um, what they, the key point for Munster is to, to make sure they're happy with their 9, 10, 12, 13. I think they've got plenty of strength and depth out, out wide. Um, I think haley has been excellent since he's come in as well, so he's certainly worth a shout. But they have a lot of other guys there in terms of Alex Wooten. They've got Sweetenham. They've got good quality there. So, um, But I think um, getting a solid platform in 9 to 13 um, is really important for the development of their game. It's great to see Munster playing with... Uh, heads up rugby with an offload and offload mindset and an attacking mindset like they did on Saturday, and I think they'll do that best with that with that combination of of uh, Murray Carberry, uh, Scanlon, and Farrell. Did this game answer all of your questions and queries that we had after the Leinster game in terms of um, what their ambition was and what their identity, what they're trying to do? Yeah, it, it did actually. I mean, it, there's always going to be questions as as the season goes on and different conditions will dictate how you play in a, in a given week. Um, but as a general rule, on a, on a nice, clear night for playing rugby, they went out and embraced that and they tried to do it and they showed they have the capability to do it. And I think it's something that the Munster public 
need to buy into. I think they, they will if they keep playing um, with that level of success and execution like they did on Saturday. Um, and I'd love to see it just be, become part of the style of play that they adopt. Because they mixed it up nicely. They were able to use the mall when they wanted to. So mm. for the Carby try, it felt like that's set up for a running mall. That's mm. what we know. We've seen this script a million times. But actually, yeah. that's not what happened. They decided that they were going to go wide instead. And they also then score a beautiful try as a result of that. Yeah, the, any of these offload-type games are useless without penetration and are useless without a strong maul and a strong set-piece. And also Munster on a number of occasions, and probably more so when Murray came on the field, kicked the ball in behind uh, Connacht as well, which challenge, challenged them enough off first-second phase through through good set-piece, through uh, having a, an attacking threat on second phase through offloads. And then when the Connacht defence became narrow where their back three started to, to come closer to their front line they kicked it in behind so they used great variation yeah where Connacht this is a, a gut check for them in terms of the season and exactly where they are an opportunity to kind of properly test yourself against uh, a team who had enough front liners out there at the end of that game for you to go okay we, we know exactly where we are now yeah I think um, Andy Friend said he, he felt uh, Munster were the strongest side they played this season and uh, I think that was instructive. They've had some good performances themselves. Um, but they kept playing the style with which they want to play uh, right up until that, that last try they scored uh, was superb. I mean, they, there was a, a huge amount of pace to it. Um, there was a lot of ambition. And obviously, they were, they were at no stage was there a kind of capitulation, even though at 14 points down, it looked like they could well have just packed their bags and walked off the field and probably would have been um, applauded for a great effort even at that stage. But they kept pushing, they showed a lot of um, grit. Um, that last try in particular, I thought, stood out for them in terms of playing under pressure, chasing yeah. the game, but still being um, true to that style that Andy Friend wants them to play with. Yeah, losing bonus points are going to be important at the end mm. of the year. Um, what about the Leinster game? Leinster beat Ulster 40 points to 7. It was, again, two very, very young teams um, with a few old stagers. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, did, dare I say, a bit of a non-event, yeah. I think. Um, you know, it's... it's we, we can, we can, we can feign interest, but I think it's it's probably an issue, greater issue for the Pro 14 League itself. Um how they address it, um, quite a number of dud games, and then when you when you turn around and look at how good the Connacht Munster game was, when when teams are fully stacked, um, superb rugby that's great to watch. That's not an issue for for Cullen Lancaster or Dan McFarland to care about because they want to peak at the right times in Europe next week, and um, you know certainly for the likes of Leinster, it's no issue that they have such depth in their squad that they can go out and score 40 points with effectively a third choice side yeah. but for the likes of ourselves and the uh, you know the the couch couch warriors and the sideline warriors who want to watch i suppose intense rugby more regularly i i do think um once we saw the teams announced, it became a little bit of a non-event, even though it was a full house in the yeah. RDS. Still an intrigue to that, though, to how certain players perform. And one of those players was Conor O'Brien. And I see him sure, yeah, in, yeah. quoted this morning as saying that Felipe Contepomi referred to him as an amateur player uh, for a while. And that, that seems very, very harsh in the kind of uh, using that term in isolation. But apparently what he meant was he played like a player in an amateur team as in he was trying to do a bit of everything at one time. So he wasn't calling him an amateur in terms of skill yeah. level and things like that. So obviously an unbelievable performance from him on Saturday night. Yeah, and we'd, hopefully that's something that was lost in translation with, yeah. with Felipe. Um, 
Yeah, I think Conor O'Brien, you know, I'm not being dismissive to those guys in terms of their ability and what they're bringing to the strength and depth, in both in Leinster and in Ulster. I suppose when you're looking at, as a, as a supporter, what's box office, they want to see the full team as often as they can. However, there are subplots when you're watching these uh, second and third choice guys pushing through, um, seeing how they can operate under pressure. Leo Cullen said it's a huge opportunity for these young guys to get to play for them, a step up Pro 14 rugby in a full house in the RDS. And the likes of Conor O'Brien taking his opportunity as, as regularly as he has in recent months. Um, there's a lot to be applauded there, yeah. What about Frolius at half? Uh, like, obviously, capped it off with a try near the end. It's like you automatically try and make bigger things out of this than possible, yes. but there is still a, a clear sort of one is Sexton, two is Ross Byrne, three is Frawley, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, Leinster have, have used uh, the recent fortnight just even down in Thomond to try, I think, and blood for all the in-pressure situations. And obviously they're, they're probably putting it up to him as well and seeing how he copes with the pressure. I think in terms of raw talent, he's got a lot. He's a superb kicker. He's a good distributor. Um, physically, again, he's, he's quite a large guy to play 10. Um, and he, he looks to be quite a calm operator too, which is important in his position. So, um, yeah, I think for, for Leinster it was important to try and discover who their third choice 10 is because Johnny's not going to play every game. Ross Byrne has been probably played a lot more pro 14 than Johnny, but they need a backup to Ross Byrne in the absence of Johnny and looking at a World Cup year. Um, they need someone they can trust to run that game. So I think it looks like Frawley's in the driving seat as that third choice. What do you do if you're in charge of the league to try and fix this, or if you're in charge of, like, uh, you know, because you need the buy-in from the IRFU, the mm. Welsh Rugby Union and the Scottish Rugby Union, and you need to say these games can't slip below a certain standard of... But, like, you can't, you can't have I quotas of international players or, you know, yeah, you just can't do that. Yeah, I, ju- I, I really, I don't know the answer. It's... Um, you know, there's there's been an issue going on in in world rugby in terms of managing fixture lists, managing the amount of games players play. It's very different to the to the football. The guys are playing sixty five games a season yeah. because it's less physically demanding. I mean, it's it's as demanding for the footballers on the on the muscles in terms of the strain that's put on. They're, the footballers getting eleven, twelve kilometers per match on average, and obviously. If, you know, fast twitch fibers, everything else, they're, they're just as prone to tears, but they're far less prone, uh, far less exposed to impact. Mm. And the body just can't, um, can't absorb more than 30, 35 games max in terms of a, a rugby season. So it's very, very tricky, I think, for, for a Pro 14 uh, organisation to try and, and work, work a way to make, you know, Stellar names turn out on a weekly basis when they've bigger Maybe. fish to fry. They've international games. Yeah. They've summer tours. Maybe they've Lions to... World World Cups. They're 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 where they are in the pecking order. The Maybe 14. it's about changing kickoff times or something. <clears throat> like if you're going to announce weak teams, we agree that you're going to announce a weak team. We'll announce a weak team. We're going to put our strong teams up against each other so that you never have a good team against a weak team. Like so, yeah. basically, I'm making the point that on Saturday, the early kickoff happened to be the good game instead of the late kickoff. If you flex those. Change those and go. Okay, the evening kickoff when everybody's actually watching it yeah. is going to be the good game this week, as opposed to the blowout. Well, it's very tricky because if you look at um, the cat and mouse that would have gone on between Leinster and Ulster in terms of who they're going to select, um, you could argue Dan McFarlane missed a trick. He could have better put out a Eddie much Sullivan stronger side. said that side. when he saw the team, he was like, "Jesus, yeah. if he'd known that Leinster were going to go with their kids, he would have actually put out his full team." Yeah, and you know, picked off a win and built confidence going into Europe. So, um, unless Dan 
and, and Ulster. Do they all know? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I think so they are. If you say, okay, weak teams ads this week. I don't believe so. I, I, I think they're, I mean, there's a little bit of second guessing going on, but also they're probably looking at these fixtures four to six weeks out. They're probably planning that far in advance. Yeah. I, I would have thought um, Dan perhaps uh, spoke to his management in Ulster and they maybe gave him a free pass for that game down the RDS. And yeah. uh, on the back of the Scarlet's results back in, in, in November, December, arguably they said, look, make sure everybody's fit and ready to go for the next European round and probably gave Dan a free pass for that, for that Saturday match with Leinster and said, look, Let's get out. Let's escape alive and breathing. And and, and no one's going to remember there. that apart no. from the guys who get their like first start or uh, the first time that they played at the RDS. And uh, next week, if they win, it's like, well, that was perfect. Exactly, perfect management of your resources. Yes, it's just unfortunate their B team isn't as good as. Yes, and I think that's that's an issue that Ulster will look to build on in in the coming seasons. I think they're 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 quite vulnerable actually when you scratch the surface below their their first choice team, but. Um, they wouldn't have anywhere near the strength and depth Leinster have. So, like when, when it comes to managing minutes from an IRFU perspective, obviously the RFU cap is much higher. That whatever their welfare experts are telling them that you know the likes of Owen Farrell can actually play a hell of a lot more games than the IRFU's welfare experts are telling them. Can we actually push the boat out? Now, I'm not saying change anything before the World Cup, obviously. Yes. But post World Cup, is it possible to actually look at that so that we can squeeze perhaps two, three, four more games out of uh, the big stars playing for Pro 14 teams? Uh, we could, uh, but I wouldn't agree with it. I think we. I think from a welfare point of view, uh, there's a genuine uh, reach towards welfare for players in the IRFU. It's not genuine in the RFU. The RFU sure. is is run by uh, clubs that are very independent. There are multi-millionaire owners who have demands on their players, and it's uh, a different entity. When it comes to the IRFU, they centrally contracted players. It was the most the most genius strategy move they ever played, and I don't know if they did it on purpose or not back in the in the late 90s, but to centralise contracts and have control over the players is now, I think, a model that most international unions are looking at and seeing how can they try and even get close to replication of it. Um, because I think it's it's just shown in, in recent years how effective it is for Irish players. So, um, albeit a problem for the Pro 14 and a problem for people who turn up on a given Saturday having paid their tickets if there's a week inside, the greater good is Irish rugby is a lot stronger for it. Any good stuff. Uh, huge weekend, obviously, of, of rugby here on Off the Ball. Leinster against Toulouse, 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Ulster against Racing, 3.15 from Kingspan Ravenhill. Both those games are live on Off the Ball on News Talk this Saturday. Gloucester take on Munster uh, in King's Home on Friday evening at 7.45. Um, good stuff, Andy. Thanks for that. Now, um, right now on uh, OTBAM, we're turning to the man of the moment. Carloman Porig Amund is joining us on the line. Here's how he knocked Leicester City out of the FA Cup yesterday evening. Newport County will have a penalty to go in front again with six minutes to go. 15 goals this season. To put Newport back in front and he has done. Straight down the middle. It's back on. Porigama, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning. How did you sleep last night? Uh, I didn't really sleep, if I'm being honest with you. Um, it was... Um, I was tossing and turning, thinking about the game again and stuff like that, and re- replaying it all over my head. And it was, um, yeah, 
it's one of the one of the best worst night sleep I've ever had. Take us back to the, the penalty. Um, so you know you're the penalty taker. The penalty gets awarded. What goes through your mind from that from that moment all the way through to you jumping to uh, celebrate at the corner flag? Um, obviously, when he when he gave when well when the ball hit his hand, I didn't think he was going to give it um, because I don't think you know usually the, the lower teams don't get those decisions. But fair play to the referee, he gave it, and it was a penalty. And, it was just a case, get the ball and, you know, put the ball down the spot quick and don't let anyone try to get into your head. And there was a couple of the Leicester players trying saying a few things to me to try to put me off. Um, and I used to play with the goalkeeper as well at Morecambe, so he would have uh, faced a lot of my penalties in training. Um, so I was just hoping either he forgot what I do or just, uh, just hope he goes the wrong way. And I was actually going to go to the side he went but he went just a little bit earlier and I saw it out of the corner of my eye and I, did, I, I changed my mind literally last second and I know you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> you're not told to do that but um, thankfully I did and um, when the ball hit the back of the net obviously it was just an unbelievable feeling um, and especially when we were just after conceding just a couple of minutes beforehand it was a very similar game to the Spurs one last year where we were so, so close and, and then... Uh, then a late goal kind of takes away that moment from from the team, and and you know this year thankfully we we actually got a moment and and we have the draw to look forward to for the the next round. What were the Leicester players saying to you as a matter of interest, trying to get in your head? There was a couple saying this will be the biggest penalty you will ever take. Don't miss. <laughs> look at all the TV cameras. Um, you know it was there was you know it's stuff you you kind of you kind of hear every time you do take a penalty, but. Probably it's you know it's a bit different than taking a penalty in League Two when there's not as many cameras <laughs> on you or, or the player who's saying it to you isn't an England international either you know so yeah. Um, but yeah thankfully the ball went in and when I do jump up and, and celebrate I did have a little look back at the player who who had said it to me and um, but yeah thankfully it was in. <laughs> don't don't be afraid to name names here, Patrick. I was there. Uh, it was James Madison. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. There we, if, you, yeah. if you played bingo on which Leicester player was likely to trash talk, we probably all would have had James Madison. Yeah, no, but look, at the same time, you fully expect things. Like I'd be disappointed yeah. if one of our players wasn't saying something like that to them because you have to try to get in the player's head because they didn't want to be on the end of a, a massive upset. Um, you know, they we we knew at half time when we were going off the pitch the amount of stick the fans were giving them, and then we could hear the manager. You know, fleecing them in the in the dressing room at half time, um, so we knew that there was pressure on them, um, and you know I don't think they expected us to do what we did to them yesterday. That's mad. You can hear Puel at half time giving out to them. Yeah, because we we have a couple of minutes to ourselves um, before our manager comes in. Him and the uh, staff go into another room and have a quick chat, and we have a chat amongst ourselves as players first. Um, and uh, yeah, we could hear we could hear a little bit going on in the other room, and you no, know, you, you fully expect it again. You, you'd be, you know, you'd be nearly disappointed if you weren't here and their manager getting into them, and and that kind of let uh, basically we sat down and had a, a couple of minutes and just were like, look, listen to that. That's what we've done in the first half. Make sure we don't disappoint them in the second half. Keep frustrating them and keep doing what we have to do to try keep the ball out of the net. Whatever it takes, we don't we don't lose when we don't lose our chance like we did last year. 
Well, that's the thing. Like over the course of the weekend, project, I'm sure you've seen there's been some absolute drubbings handed out over the course of the FA Cup. There was no golf and quality apparent, really, watching that game last night. Uh, yeah, um, watching the Spurs game on Friday night was a little bit. We went into training Saturday morning, and everyone was kind of like, it kind of puts our result into perspective. Last year it wasn't a bad performance from us, and then it was, you know, oh, let's let's not laugh or let's not say too much because you never know what it could end up tomorrow either. Um, you know, and, and then obviously no one gave us a chance going into the game apart from probably the the players in the dressing room and the staff. Um, and you know we have, we have belief going into any game because it's look anyone can beat anybody. You know, you just need a, things to go right for you in the main. You, you need to take a chance. You need a bit of luck. Um, and you know you, you you need them to make a couple of changes as well, which they did. Um, and you know we were obviously. When we saw the team sheet, there was a couple of names missing on it, which was very, very pleasing for us. Um, you know, some people might say, "Oh, you disappointed such and such didn't play." I was like, "No, delighted, <laughs> delighted Vardy wasn't playing because you know he's a, he would have relished coming to a place like our place because he's used to it um, when he was coming through the ranks as well." And you know, it was just brilliant to be able to hold on for the victory and, and get it just rewards because you know, as 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 much as last year was brilliant with the Spurs won the moral victory of it all you know I, I'd said before the game that this game was a bigger game because we were welcoming the Premier League champions from a couple of years ago um, and it's not very often you get to play against you know people who have captained their their team to win the, the Premier League and you're playing against Johnny Evans who's won I don't know how many Premier League titles he's won and a lot of the Leicester players have won, won the title as well so you know, it doesn't happen very often, but to turn them over makes it even more special. Do, do you think about what this does kind of in the context of the Cup? Because we were speaking at the top of the show here about every single back page here, Barr, maybe one uh, this morning, is your picture on the back page. And I understand that's the same with a lot of the newspapers in the UK this morning. Newport County are the story of the weekend. And it is stories like this that make the FA Cup the thing that tunes us all in week after week. Yeah, um, you know, before last year's, you know, you can be very critical of kind of saying the magic has kind of gone from the cup. Um, you know, the bigger teams disrespected it a little bit with the changes they made. And now you understand why, you know, they, they make as many changes as they do. But look, in fairness to, to Spurs last year and to Leicester this year, they they, they didn't really disrespect us. Um, you know, Spurs had a very strong team and Leicester played a very strong team that was available to them because we knew they had a couple of injuries and Sickness and stuff like that, so a couple of the players were unavailable. Um, but yeah, it's just it is a bit mad. Um, my dad sent me over. I think he's been out and he's bought all the papers this morning already, and he sent me a picture of um, them all over this morning, which is you know surreal seeing my picture on the back of them all. And I'm going to head out and get a couple over here as well, and just just kind of relish it all to be honest with you, because look, this doesn't happen very often. Um, this is a it's a it's an unbelievable feeling, an unbelievable moment, and as I said, I'm going to relish it all. Yeah, no, and I I was talking about that a little bit earlier on. Like, yours is one of those <clears throat> professional careers in in football where you know it's it's a grind to make it, but then you do make it, and you get a moment like this, and it's all worthwhile. Yeah, completely. Look, I've, I've been lucky enough to to play over here for the last um, I think eight years, and obviously before that, I had a little spell in Portugal, and then. My time in Ireland as well, which you know, I lo- I've I've loved every moment from the minute you know I could kick a football. All I wanted to do was play football for a living, and 
I don't class this as a job. It's a, it's a hobby. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just something I get to do. Get get up every day and go to train and um, get to play football on the weekend in front of a few thousand people, and that's the stuff people always dream of doing. Um, and you know, I hope it can continue for quite a long time to come. Um, I've no plan on, on slowing down yet, and and you know, I'm I'm just really really enjoying it all. Like that, that's a remarkable attitude to have because the the more we read and the kind of more and more professional football gets and the more and more pressure that is on individual players, the less and less we hear that sort of view that it is ultimately people like you doing the thing that they love. Yeah, look, it's 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 like anything. You know, anyone can grow up wanting to. You know, you have a dream and you're growing up of what you want to do. Look, don't get me wrong. My, when I was growing up, I was Man United or or someone like that. I wanted to play for, but at the same time. You don't realise the calibre of the players that are are in the lower leagues over here, and you know if you took one player out of each team and put them in a couple of divisions higher, they wouldn't look out of place if that makes sense to you, because the qualities of them all are very good, and and you know it's the same with you put defenders in in bigger teams, and and you know it's the same kind of concept, you know it's the same job, the same as midfielders and same as strikers and goalkeepers as well, so you know. There are very good players in the lower leagues. I think sometimes it's maybe disrespected a little bit. Um, but I can understand as well because play, people are just used to watching the Premier League, you know, because it's so freely available. And then they probably get 25 minutes or half an hour of highlights on on uh, on the TV of the, the lower leagues uh, each week. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's clubs over here. Like for our, our club at the minute, Newport, that, the club nearly... Well, it did go. It went out of existence, and it, a group of fans got it back, and you know, they fought and fought for what they loved. And you know, the result yesterday is for people like that who who had fought so hard to get the club back to where where um, they wanted it to be. And I think in the eighties they got to the when John Aldridge was there, they were in the Cup Winners' Cup quarter final. You know, so they've had big days before. So. Hopefully, a day like yesterday can inspire the younger players or the younger people in Newport to want to go up and play for Newport, um, rather than the Cardiff or the Swansea. You, know, you can still have that dream, but then when they play for someone like Newport, it means something for them. Did you hurl for Carlo as a minor? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I probably shouldn't have been, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't have been because it was um, you were playing football seriously at the same time as well. <laughs> I was playing with Shamrock Rovers in the first team, and um, I played uh, I, I played a game for Carlow about three hours before I played for Shamrock Rovers. Wow! Um, <laughs> one day, and because I did, I was quite naive. I didn't want to let anyone down, um, and I told the Carlow manager, who was Tommy Buggy at the time, that look, I, I can't do that. I can't, you know. And he said, "Well, look, we'll just we we'll put you down on the program as a as a different name and stay out of team photos and." Um, and all that, and I kind of only got caught when we beat we beat Offaly in the semi final, and I scored a couple of goals in the last <laughs> minute to uh, to get us there. And and uh, I remember having a conversation with Pat Scully then afterwards, and thankfully he was he was very good to me. Um, he was excellent, you know, with me, and he let me finish out the season. Um, but yes, my career could have been over before it even started. But I, to be honest, I didn't want to let anyone down because I'd been training with Carlo for the from the October before and obviously the season had started in March but I wasn't in the first team at Shamrock Rovers I broke into it kind of two weeks into the season um, so it was never on my radar of that and then 
all of a sudden I was juggling everything. Um, I was playing minor football as well at the time, but that didn't get as much uh, <laughs> didn't get as much um, airtime as the minor hurling did. Um, so I was doing everything at the time, and cause, just because I love playing sports, I love GA, I love soccer as well, and, and I just wanted to play as much sport as I could. And you know, I kind of was lucky that I, Pat Scully was was very good to me, and and. You know, he said to me, look, you can finish the season. We had kind of a couple of games left. We had Kilkenny in the Leinster final and then whoever we were going to play in the All-Ireland quarterfinal. Um, and then that was, yeah, that was the last game I played the All-Ireland quarterfinal and then I concentrated fully on on uh, on soccer from then on. If it wasn't going to be GEA or football, was there a chance that it could have been something to do with racing? Because I know you've got family involved with the Willie Mullins camp, with the Jessica Harrington camp and with the Gordon Elliott camp at the moment. Yeah, no, it, it, it probably wasn't, to be honest with you. I was never... Never been, you know, I was never, we weren't brought up in, I've obviously got a lot of family involved in horse racing and stuff like that, but we were never, um, it was never from from my family, if that makes sense, direct family. Um, but yeah, we've uh, a couple of cousins, um, my grandmother and grandfather work for for uh, Willie as well. So um, yeah, they've, they've, they've quite, a, quite a lot of people involved in it and obviously they're doing fantastic. Um, the three stables as well are doing really, really well and it's brilliant to, to, especially for Willie, to have someone like him putting Carlo on the map every weekend um, is unbelievable. And, you know, he's only getting better and better as well. And, and it's great for, for the whole county, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. Porik, who do you want in the next round? Is it Man United all the way? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Away from home, Old Trafford. Um, but then probably the best chance you have of beating him is it at Rodney Parade, so... You know, take him to Rodney Parade first and then see what happens. But either way, it's just great to be able to sit here and talk about being in the draw for the fourth round. Um, the likelihood is the game will be on TV again after yesterday. You know, whoever we get will sense the giant killing again. And that was one of the reasons the BBC put us on TV yesterday. You know, you could you possibly see that there was going to be a bit of a giant killing. Um, although when we were watching the analysis of them during the week when they beat City and... And Chelsea, I think a few um, a few of the players lost a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of uh, of the belief that they had. But um, you know that just goes to show how how good the victory was yesterday. And and the best thing about it all was it, it was a deserved victory. Uh, somebody's texted in wondering what was your fake name in GAA? Who did you, or was it somebody else that they put you down as? Did you have a an, a, a proper um, fake no, name? Just Brendan. Brendan, it was my, my second name is Brendan, so they just put the program down as Brendan Ammons. <laughs> That's not exactly throwing people no, off the sense. Not, there was nothing illegal about it. It was all, it was all done above board. <laughs> Fair enough. Park, great stuff. Congratulations. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. It's Park Ammon there giving us um, some uh, amazing response and reflection on um, that game. James Madison trying to ice the penalty taker if yeah, he can use yeah. the NFL phrase. Screw you, James Madison. Uh, right, let's move on because it was the wildcard weekend um, in the NFL and it didn't really disappoint that much. Mike Carlson joins us. Um, Mike, um, I'm a, as I, we probably have established uh, many multiple times, I'm a, a San Francisco 49ers fan and they picked up Robbie Gould, the kicker from the Chicago Bears. He's a brilliant kicker, could have been uh, all pro, could have been at the Pro Bowl this year. But it turns out the Bears don't need a kicker, right? Because they've got Cody Parkey. <laughs> I, that was the most frustrating part of what was, I think, a very frustrating weekend, actually. You know, the games were more interesting than great um, in in one sense. But it's amazing how Nick Foles is a hero again 
because the Bears did everything right to win the game except to make the field goal on the second try. And one of the things I hate the most about the NFL is that icing the kicker call where the, the coach on the sidelines is allowed to call timeout just at the moment the ball's being snapped. And because the whistle sounds on the sideline, but not on the field, the ball is inevitably snapped. The kicker kicks it. The kick is good in this case with Cody Parkey. And then he has to do it over again. And I, I, I saw, you know, there were people saying, oh, I knew he was going to miss it the second time. Uh, but he chose an interesting way to miss it, which was to bang it off the left upright and then off the goalpost and then out. Um, so that was about as frustrating as it could be. And that gives the Eagles a one-point win, 16-15 at Soldier Field. How good was Nick Foles in this game? Was there some of last season's magic, or was this more about the Bears just not being able to score enough points? Yeah, there, there was there was a little bit of that magic. But when you think, you know, they only put up 16 points. They had the great drive in the fourth quarter when they needed it. But the Bears' defense played played them very well. Um, and the untold story of, of most of these playoff games, I think, was the defense often by the teams that aren't renowned for their defense, but actually have pretty good ones. And, and the key for the Eagles is that they're getting back people at the right time. So Timmy Jernigan, who's, who's very good up front because he lets some of the other players get better block, get better blocking um, or lesser blocking assignments because he absorbs blockers. Jordan Hicks, the linebacker was back and played a few plays. He, he adds to their defense. So, so basically um, I think it was, it was the story of the Eagles defense keeping the Bears offense in check. They weren't able to run the ball at all. Uh, Mitch Trubisky made like Foles made some throws when he had to make them. But otherwise, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a powerful offensive game. And I go back. I think we said it last week too, to that 54 51 game when the neck, the discussion on Monday was, oh, so is the NFL now going to be all all run and shoot and high scoring games? And I think you saw from all four, four of these playoff games uh, that that's just not the case. Okay, so we're working backwards here. The Eagles beat the Bears. Did you want to talk about that? Well, want... just just on the, the just on the kind of I went to bed at halftime. I'm not going to lie, Mike, and it was whatever six three. <laughs> I think to the to the Bears at halftime, and we were sitting here, and I think we had you on the show after that incredible Kansas City Chiefs Los Angeles Rams game. Uh, what was it? 54, 50, yeah, 54, 51, 51, I want to say 54, 51. Uh, about about how the NFL has changed, about it's ho- how it's all offense now, and how people are going to be shooting the lights out week after week after week. And then this weekend, and that game in particular, made me think twice about that, that perhaps we've got ahead of ourselves just a little bit in terms of how good offenses are going to be going into the future. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, I, I wrote that on that Monday on my Patreon column with the other scores from games that week, which were all pretty much like the ones from the playoff games yesterday, um, which, you know, three of them were sort of like low 20s. And then there was the 16, 15. Uh, Def, you know, the old saying is defenses win in the playoffs. But what and I think what you saw was a, this week, you have a, a few teams that are run first teams with good defenses, having their problems against each other and mobile quarterbacks try, making plays, which which turned out to be the difference in a couple of games. But, you know, Indianapolis beat Houston because Marlon Mack gained 150 yards rushing and, and uh, Zeke Elliott gained 137 for Dallas. They were able to kind of run the ball and that let other things happen uh, for their teams. And then of course you had Baltimore with just that horrible, it was a game of 
I don't know how you describe it, a game of two uneven halves, three quarters, Baltimore were horrible. And then the fourth quarter, Lamar Jackson sort of started working the the playground ball magic of scrambling and, and making plays. And uh, it, it almost came down to the wire. Yeah, a lot of um, heat for Harbaugh, the Ravens coach, for not pulling his quarterback from the game at halftime, even with three quarters gone, and then Lamar Jackson has a really good fourth quarter. But was that too little too late? If you're John Harbaugh, do you want to put Joe Flacco in and put the ball back in the hands of this guy who you think has been stinking the joint out for multiple seasons? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument apart from from the British, the ambiguity uh, or the double entendre of the British sense of pulling, making everybody laugh uh, who was watching uh, the game on British television. Um, I think the problem is what you're doing is is trying to balance off long-term against short-term. And a good coach, I think, can pull a quarterback who's having a bad day at that point and say to him, Okay, look, this isn't this this isn't your day. We're going to try something else and see what happens. And and Flacco comes in now. By the fourth quarter, that was too late, because Joe Flacco would be a one-dimensional strategy to to, to try to get the ball downfield. And you could argue they were having so little success with that that there wasn't much point in putting Joe Flacco in. And and what happened was when finally in the fourth quarter, Lamar Jackson started to um, outrun what was a sort of tiring pass rush uh, from the Chargers, that's when when uh, things started to happen for them. But uh, the story of that game, I think, was was the Chargers figuring out a way to stop that sort of option running offense from Baltimore. And um, Baltimore's two tailbacks combined for just 36 yards on 14 carries. Jackson fumbled the ball three times, uh, got sacked seven times. Uh, Melvin Ingram just had an amazing game for the Chargers, uh, you know, the kind of thing that should put you in the Hall of Fame. The Chargers go to Boston next week, and every time the Chargers have gone on an airplane this year, they have uh, come away with a win against a bunch of playoff teams included. So it's not like they've been playing duds week in, week out. The only game that they lost that was an away game was also in L.A. So they are precisely the type of challenge that we haven't seen too often in the AFC for the Patriots over the Belichick era. Do you give them a chance of winning that game, or how good a chance do you give oh, them winning that oh, game? Oh, they have a very good chance of winning that game, I think. Um, the The Patriots are not – this isn't your your Patriots team of the past. They're not a very good team um, on, on either side of the ball. Uh, their, lines, their lines are not dominant. Their defense is very slow overall, and I think they'll, they'll have a bit of trouble – um, with the Chargers offense, but they'll have a lot of trouble with the Chargers defense. They can, it's a different situation than it was against Baltimore and that running option offense. They're going to be able to come at Tom Brady with Joey Bosa, uh, with Melvin Ingram, with a lot of creative blitzes. And they played with seven defensive backs for most of that game. And again, I wrote on my column um, on Friday that, they play a lot with three safeties who they use as linebackers and stuff, but they played the whole game with three safeties and four cornerbacks. So the safeties were in effect, the linebackers and able to stop the run. Can you just They're explain so what, can you just explain? Cause a lot of people wonder what the difference between a linebacker and a safety is. Linebackers tend yeah. to be bigger guys. Safeties tend to be exactly. faster guys. 
you've basically got three lines of defense. You've got your line, your linebackers, and then your secondary. And the secondary are cornerbacks who specialize more or less in in covering the quicker wide receivers and safeties who cover the tight ends, slot receivers, and, and are in the middle and are supposed to give run support. So by playing three of them, you get a bigger secondary. And by playing them close to the line of scrimmage, you really confused Baltimore, almost daring them to try to pass downfield on you. But they their, their two corners were taking care of the wide receivers the safeties weren't giving up anything to the tight ends and were stopping the run and when melvin ingram was there he was basically stopping the option by playing both the option is the is the quarterback and the running back the quarterback is supposed to read the end if the end come towards him he pass he laterals the ball out to the running back if he goes to the running back the quarterback keeps the ball ingram was doing both he wasn't giving lamar jackson an option to to lateral he was playing both guys and doing it really well there was no way to read him and you know i i think he's going to drive the patriots crazy i'm you, you always hate picking a West Coast team coming to the East Coast. Uh, you hate picking against the Patriots at home. They were 8-0 at home this year, the only unbeaten team in the league. But like as you said, the Chargers are 8-1 and one on the road. Um, plus the London home game for them was a road game in effect. So, uh, you know, they play in a home stadium that gives them no home field advantage. So I think maybe they, they don't mind going on the road. Mike, it was a pretty good weekend for the grizzled quarterback. Like, just going through the results, Andrew Luck beating Deshaun Watson. The, the Cowboys game was obviously the exception to the rule with, with uh, Dak Prescott getting the win over Russell Wilson. But then it was a good night for uh, Philip Rivers last night, as it was for Nick Foles, who we've spoken about at length. And then, going into this weekend, then you bring in a whole new host of, of great quarterbacks, from the young to the old, from Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady. Who do you want as your quarterback right now going in uh, to the, into the divisional weekend? Who would you trust with the ball in your hand out of all the quarterbacks left, uh, left alive in this? Well, I guess the guy who, and I don't, I don't know if uh, Andrew Luck's going to, you know, uh, be happy with you calling him grizzled, but or <laughs> Russell Wilson for that matter. But there you go. Um, but I, I think the guy you would trust the most is probably Drew Brees. Um, at 39, he played pretty well this year. He had a little downtime in in December where where he seemed to be off a bit on his throws, and everyone was saying, "Oh, 39 years old, arm is tired, blah blah blah." But of course, the guy who has played the best probably of that bunch is Patrick Mahomes. Uh, you know, who's just had a phenomenal season in his first year as a starter, 50 touchdown passes, which not many people apart from Tom Brady or uh, Peyton Manning. Oh, we just seem to have lost the audio there. Just clicked, clicked the mute button just as he was about to deliver that roasting hot take. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we can... Uh, can get that back. I I, I, I always wonder about um, very young quarterbacks in these very very big situations. It does it, it, because it's such a ruthless sport and such a ruthless format. It has to seep in somewhere. Now Mahomes seems to be made of different stuff, doesn't he? He's just an outrageous talent and also seems to be perhaps a little bit more blithe than normal people. Yeah, I'm that, that to, could go for most quarterbacks, though, right? I'm trying to think of um, the last time a really young quarterback made it this far and uh, it's been a long time I mean Kaepernick was in his second season his, his third season yeah it's, it's like would the Eagles have won the quarterback but when even though yeah. he's a better football player at quarterback it's a ridiculous question but Bamie Doss yeah so sorry Mike we, we lost your audio there just at, uh, as you were talking about um, yeah Skype doesn't like my face <laughs> 
is what it was. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was saying Mahomes has had, you know, a, f- a fantastic season, 50 touchdown passes, even though um, and they lost Kareem Hunt during during the season. And I think that I think that this will be the test for him. The guy I, I actually might worry about a bit is Jared Goff. Uh, you know, who a couple of times this year when he's faced when he's faced good defenses or and tough challenges has had has had a rough time with it. And and again, if you can control their running game and, and force them into the air, um, that that makes them a whole different proposition. But the Chargers are such a well-balanced team. And I think what people didn't notice so much or didn't account for in the uh in the playoff weekend this weekend is that Indianapolis's defense is pretty good. Um Dallas's defense is is good. San Diego uh, Los Angeles Chargers defense is good, you know, and and they're not in that Baltimore kind of elite elite area, Bears elite area, but they're balanced teams. They can play on both sides of the ball. The spreads next weekend are huge. I'm just looking at them here. Uh Indy are plus 6 at Kansas City. Dallas are plus 7 at the Rams. The Chargers are plus four and a half in Boston against the Patriots, and the Eagles are plus ten against the Saints. That doesn't make any sense to me, given how tight the games were last weekend. Yeah, well, the the four teams that are left are better are better teams, uh, obviously, because they got the bye. Apart from New England, I, I keep thinking, saying New England's kind of overrated at this point, which is why that spread is the, is the smallest. People might be looking back at New Orleans uh, killing Philadelphia earlier in the season. But again, like I said, Philadelphia is not the same team right now. And I don't think anyone's going to want to play them just simply because that that uh, defense looked looked so good um, last week. And New Orleans's defense improved a lot during the season. But but you wonder now at this level, the Rams defense isn't that great. As I said, the Patriots defense isn't that great. Kansas City's defense isn't that great. And New Orleans, probably the best of the four, but but not in the category of some of the other teams. And I think I think that's why you're you're right that these spreads seem a, a bit generous uh, to the to the visiting teams. And I, I think there'll be a lot of action on those visiting teams. Yeah, for sure. Mike, great stuff. Enjoy the rest of the week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a million. Okay, cheers. Thanks, guys. Mike Carson, give us some um, analysis and reaction to uh, Wildcard Weekend. I've just kind of, like, seen the bandwagon pull up, told it to stop, and just kind of pushed myself to the front. Yeah, which one? No, the NFL bandwagon on Wildcard Weekend. Any of these teams in particular, what what do you like about them? Their jerseys? Well, it's very, very hard to not be blinded by Kansas City. It's just, it's just impossible, really. It's just a, an exceptionally young quarterback. Very, very exciting team. Of course, you know, there's a, a couple of offensive weapons. That aren't, I, okay, here's something for you. So uh, sa- Saturday night, I was like, uh, I, I, we, we all know about Deshaun Watson and what he's gone through over the last year in terms of injury. And uh, I, I've basically been stung in the past by, by certain people I've, I've wanted to get behind. Like Tyree Kill was one of those people. I was like, this guy's a great footballer. And I was like, actually, no, he's a terrible human being. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, he's a great footballer. And I was like, actually, no, he's a terrible human being. Yeah. And I was on Saturday night, I was like, Deshaun Watson, he's a great footballer. But before I could really pin my colours to the mass, I had to actually message a friend of mine who's big into the NFL and say, listen, is it okay to actually get on the Deshaun Watson bandwagon? And yeah. he's like, it's totally fine, totally he's fine. Great guy, yeah. So uh, I have got into that habit of like uh, cross-referencing people I want to get behind. And uh, Patrick Mahomes is probably one of those people as well. So I'm hopping from the Deshaun Watson bandwagon to the Patrick Mahomes bandwagon for this weekend. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but every time you've jumped on the bandwagon, the team has been immediately knocked out. Yeah, like last year it was uh, the Bills, the Bills, and then the Jags. Yeah, the Jags um, lasted two weeks. 
Yeah, they, they, they lasted two weeks, but I, I think I got on the week just before they lost. But uh, <laughs> yeah, shame, shame there is no Bills this week this year. I guess uh, Josh Allen being the best quarterback of all time is enough for us Bills fans this year. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, all right, so uh, we had some amazing pieces on Sundays off the ball that are worth checking out. The podcast with the hockey superstar, Alison <coughs> McFerrin, is absolutely brilliant. Over on our YouTube channel, you can check out our interview with Rashida Adeliki, one of the Irish, uh, one of Irish athletics' brightest prospects. Uh, an amazing summer for Rashida, and uh, she was in yesterday speaking with Kleena and uh, Maura Trasset to celebrate Nulag Naman and launch our new 20 by 20 coverage for the year. It was all female voices on the show all day yesterday. We also had a rugby special with Fiona Steed, Fiona Coughlin and Neve Briggs looking back at their Grand Slam and of course looking forward to everything else that's going on. But here they are on the news that England's women's rugby is going pro. Well, that's it. I mean, England have dabbled in the professional era, you know, a few times over the past 10 years and that. Um, but this is their first real, you know, here we are, full-time contracts and some part-time ones as well. And 28,000 isn't a whole lot of money, but it allows them to be sports people, you know, for the, for the duration. And it, we'll be up against it, first game of the Six Nations, because they, um, they will have had from yesterday together. You know, and we'll be pulling together for a few a few weekends here and there before then. Would that be something that might have been playing on your mind if you were still playing and you're facing up against England and you're thinking, these women are here, they're being professional, they're getting £28,000, which you know isn't massive, especially if you're living in London, but it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. Yeah, look, I think England, in fairness, we were always up against it, uh, against England, because their numbers, because their structures in place were always better than ours, but it is something at the back of your mind, but at the end of the day, it comes down to... On, on the day and the game um, you know I don't think there's a huge amount that they're going to do in a month that's going to make them any better than they were in the November series um, they just I, I don't know what way they're structuring it but I don't think they're together all week I think they're back at their clubs a lot they're trying to put a lot of focus back on the clubs developing these international players as well so it'll be interesting to see how it pans out but I think by the time the next World Cup comes they're going to be definitely significantly ahead of us off the ball back on the radio tonight on News Talk from 7 o'clock with Monday Night Rugby and the Football Show. We're going to be back tomorrow morning here from 7.45am. If you haven't checked out our new website yet, offtheball.com, we've uh, relaunched and you can watch and listen to this show. Um, there's various URLs that you can just click and anytime we go live, the stream will pop up there. It's an embedded YouTube feed, so it's really easy for you to watch that. But you can also minimise that and you can just listen to the audio. And if you want an audio-only stream as well, so if you want to just consume this like a radio show, you can do that too on offtheball.com. So that's pretty much all we've got time for today. We'll be back tomorrow morning from 7.45. Bernard Jackman will be joining us and loads more as well. So good luck. So if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45 a.m.